Oh, I heard us get in sync there. Yeah, yeah. The shape of things to come. Magical when we record. <laughs> Welcome back, listeners, to what is probably one of the worst ideas we've but one that we're going to succeed in doing, and I assume that is doing all doing four podcasts at once, correct? Yep. Hey, we did three. We did three before. We can do four. Yeah, I think maybe uh, I'll, I'll we'll try to stick to a less anecdotal talking about philosophy and, and life uh, <laughs> um, approach this time. I think and, as little uh, sidetracking as possible. Okay. Yeah. Uh, no promises, so though. If we're lucky, I'll finish at 9 p.m. <laughs> uh, I don't see that happening, though, with how much I know about Guardians. Um, all right, so we are... This is week 10, part one. I've actually lost track of what week number we are on, but that sounds about right, which, in the, if that's the case, then we're just about at the halfway mark of the MCU. Yeah, what is it, 22 movies? No, it's not up to that many already. I thought Black Panther was like 18 or something. Oh, no, sorry. I'm thinking the number is going to be when, it, when Phase 3 is over, right? When Phase 3 is over, including Infinity. Yeah, probably be about around there anyway. I have that number in my head. I feel like it's for a reason. Then I will trust you on that. But yes, we are now on week something or other discussing... Um, both, I think both of our one of our favorites of the MCU. Well, we're doing both Guardians of the Galaxies, but the first one and, and the second one are both amazing movies, and that's the topic for our first podcast, correct? Correct. Perfect. So, yeah, this is this is going to be an interesting one. For, so, for those who have been following along, uh, it's week ten. Uh, recently, we just got information that Infinity War is going to be coming out a week early. So. Thanks Damn for it. that, Marvel. Damn it, Disney. Probably the only time in history we've ever complained about a movie this hype being moved up a week. Yeah. Also, I think tickets are going on sale on Friday, so i got to keep an eye open for that. Yes, because we will be seeing that opening weekend for sure. Yeah. Um, and now I don't have to worry about that Protest the Hero concert uh, taking place the same weekend. Although I think I'm going on a Thursday anyway. But... Um, well, all's well that ends well then. So... Keep that weekend open, because whenever I get tickets for us, is when we'll be going. Sounds good. Alright, so, because of this, we did Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1 and Volume 2, which actually take place uh, in this timeline, one after another, because uh, of the chronological order we're going through, whereas normally this is a, a Phase 3 film. So this is going to be the only Phase 3 film we'll be covering uh, bef well, before today, I guess, because we're, we'll, we'll finish up Phase 2 by the time we're done this marathon here. Yeah, true. At the end of this, uh, when we're done all these podcasts, will be the end of Phase 2. Wow. Yeah. So, um, let's start her off with the Guardians of the Galaxy Prelude comic. Um, uh, I honestly wrote some notes on this. I watched this like last week, so I uh, don't remember a lot of my notes. Um, <laughs> so this is going to be semi-useless information. Uh, how much How much do you remember about the Prelude comic? 
Now, are we doing the the one like the the prelude or the infinite comic dangerous prey first? Which which one are we talking about? Uh, I don't think it matters which one takes place where, but I'm just not sure which one. I, there is one called Prelude, so I assume it's that one with. Uh, I think it's split into two issues: one with Nebula and one with uh, Rocket and Groot. Yes, that's that's the Prelude. That's the one that I believe takes place first. Cool. Uh, no, I don't really remember a whole lot of it. Uh, I think it was it was fun. It was just like more little character introductions. We got to see uh, like Rocket and Groot in full on you know bounty hunter action, which we. You know, this is the first time all of these characters are being introduced to the MCU. So, if you had no familiarity with them, if you read this before you saw the movie, then you would get a little bit of taste of what Rocket and Groot are like. I really don't remember a whole lot of the Nebula side, other than she was uh, just—it was a little bit about her growing up, and I think it was interesting. It was her, it was her just when they were younger? Because you don't really get the full dynamic. Even in the first movie, you don't really get the full dynamic of Nebula and uh, Gamora's like relationship and how truly strained it was and how like awful like um um she could be uh, gamora could be to nebula not really meaning to just because of the way when you're raised as the daughter of thanos you know there's a there's a strict regimen and they don't take shit lightly so just due to her upbringing and stuff she often wasn't cognizant of the way she treated nebula i guess and this kind of gives like a slight backstory towards that but other than that i don't really remember a whole lot from this i remember it was enjoyable it was uh, a fun little backstory comic wow <laughs> let, let me just say I'm impressed uh, of your casual use of the word cognizant oh well you know I, I try every now and then to sound smart even when I'm not you know it's a uh, it's, it's a writer's trick I learned from you absolutely if uh, <laughs> there was any time for it it's, it's on a podcast when <laughs> hopefully someone's listening hopefully so uh, the prelude comic um, this one I didn't re- really care for that much um which is unfortunate because it's written by Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning, and they are Guardians of the Galaxy veterans. Um, I believe they wrote the majority of uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy as we know them uh, comics, and uh, probably the entire, don't quote me on this, but I feel like they wrote the entire Annihilation uh, series in general, which uh, is to cosmic marvel what civil war is to you know earth so they're a big deal they're fantastic writers um not that the writing of this is bad i just <clears throat> i don't know didn't care for it too much uh i don't remember a lot of my writing on this i wrote some weird stuff down so we got we got i wrote down praxius nine which is one of the planets they go on i assume <laughs> that'll uh, leave to you <laughs> yeah i wrote the fall of dervani which i forgot to look up. I, I researched everything else except this one comic, it seems. Um, so I don't remember what that is, but uh, probably something minute. I'm sure there's a comic reference to that there. Uh, but yeah, so the one thing I, I found interesting about this was um, so it shows Nebula and Gamora training together as kids. Um, but they're on loan to Ronin. And I, I found that interesting because they, uh, when we have uh, John C. Riley in the movie talking about uh, Gamora and Nebula and how how they work for Ronan right now, they, they say that Thanos recently loaned them out to Ronan. And I guess recent is uh, relative when you live in space. I don't know how long Zandarians live for, but uh, yeah. yeah, they were kids 
when they were still uh, on loan to Ronin. And uh, Korath, who is the uh, the guy we see in the beginning of the film, um, played by, what's his name? Juman Hanso? Or oh, I know who you're talking about, the one who says, who Star-Lord introduces himself to Star-Lord, as Star-Lord, he says who? Yeah, so he... I know who you're talking about. He goes by Korath the Pursuer, which I thought was funny, because there's a lot of characters in this that have names like that, the something. Um... So he, uh, he, it, it looks like he was training alongside Gamora and Nebula. So I think he actually was one of their siblings, you know, like a son of Thanos or whatever, if you will. Uh, although they don't really say. Um, I definitely looked him up, but I don't remember anything, uh, um, saying either way what, what really happened with that. So it it should be noted that I think he was um, I it's it's still a little unsure what they are. We just know that Gamora and Nebula are daughters of Thanos, right? So you could call Korath the son of Thanos if you want, which I assume is what he is. But as we'll see in Infinity War, I believe, um, we're gonna get introduced to the Black Order. Now, the Black Order is Thanos' like other, I think, children is probably what they're going to go with for this. Um, it's a little different in the comics, and I actually don't remember a ton of it. But uh, I'll talk a, a little bit more about that at length later on, where I have my notes indicative of it. But uh, So I think Korath might have been a member of this group, and I don't know if Nebula and Gamora consider themselves members of this group. But... Uh, I'll, I'll touch on the Black Order a little more. So I thought that was that was interesting. Though it seems like Korath is like you, you don't really you kind of feel like he's just one of Ronan's goonies, especially because he dies pretty easily. But uh, yeah, I think he was supposed to be like kind of on the level with Gamora and Nebula. Oh, didn't pick up on that at all. Yeah. Um, we also see uh, Nebula getting her bionic left arm, which is a classic uh, Marvel thing there. The metal arms. Another mm -hmm. member of the club. Um, and then, yeah, we see Rocket and Groot in the other half, and they are... Uh, I believe they're... They're working for a Stygian whose name is Zade Scragot, which I haven't looked up either, so I'm not sure if he's supposed to be anyone. I apologize. Um, <laughs> so, this, the Stygians, uh, if, if that's who he was, I'm pretty sure Zade Scragot was one of the Stygians, they have, like, ten tentacles-like arms, and uh, the, the way they're portrayed in the MCU is the way the Ascovarians are portrayed in comics and which is kind of interesting because we don't see any Ascovarians but they get mentioned a couple times in this movie um, which I'll mention as we go through the movie uh, so that, that's pretty much the prelude um, so we, yeah we get introduced to Nebula we get introduced to Rocket and Groot which is kind of fun yeah and just then, fun little like, side quests that we see Rocket and Groot on yeah which is you know they're a good duo yeah, uh, and then for the Infinite comic, 
we have the same writers. Uh, and in this one, uh, we it starts off with Sif and Volstag, uh, you know, um, talking to the Collector, Tanelir Tavon, uh, kind of the same way uh, Thor Dark World ended. They, they mentioned some other stuff that I also forgot to look up. Like, I got I got the conjunction on here. I don't know what that means. Um, I'd love to see these notes. They just sound horrifically messy. <laughs> yeah, well, usually I write stuff down and then, like, uh, I just forgot the comics or I looked at the rest of the stuff. I didn't look as far up, I guess. Um, but, yeah, we... I thought it was interesting they, at some point in the comic, I don't remember when, uh, they mentioned scroll detectors, which is kind of funny. Um, because there's... When they made this movie, there was a lot of issues with uh, um, copyright stuff. So uh, there's I, the scrolls are generally tied in with the Fantastic Four, um, which they seem to have rights to because they're using them in Captain Marvel. But I think there were specific scrolls that Fox entirely owned. Which wouldn't be surprising, knowing like God, uh, they split up like Quicksilver, for example. I'm- I'm not surprised that there's the, these things where they can use certain parts but not others. So, the, so we got to mention the scroll detectors, which is interesting. Um, which is kind of funny because I think at some point they, uh, I think in Thor: Dark World Prelude, they mentioned the the Badoon, and the Badoon I think are also owned by Fox in movie rights or maybe Universal or something like that. So they couldn't put the Badoon in the movie. But uh, they were able to put them in the comics. Um, and actually, the Badoon were supposed to be... I think they were going to use it instead of the Chitari, But they're like, we don't have the rights to that. And then they... I, I don't know for a fact they were going to use it instead of the Chitari, Like, they were looking into that. But I know James Gunn for sure was going to use the Badoon um, in Guardians of the Galaxy instead of uh, the Sakaarans, which we'll talk about later. But they didn't have the rights to that. Um, because the Badoon are actually tied to Star Wars um, origin story. Oh. Well, the reimagined origin story that came out in, like, 2008 or whatever the recent... Whenever Bendis' run on Guardians of the Galaxy happened, they, they kind of reimagined that there, which is fantastic. That was right when they were getting into production for Guardians of the Galaxy, and I jumped into that hard. Um, so... I'm just going to try to mention these whenever they pop up. Uh, extracurricular reading. I would highly recommend Bendis' run on Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, also, the original run um, and Annihilation. That stuff is super big and super important for this. Um, I've read a lot of Cosmic Marvel stuff. Um, so there's going to be a lot of these recommendations. Um, yeah, so the, the big thing uh, in the Infinite comic, we see Gamora in a bar fight, which is fun. Um, she's trying to get information... Uh, on the orb because she wants to deliver it to Tanelir Tavon and Tanelir Tavon is, you know, in contact with the broker because he's the one that, uh, you know, the broker makes a deal with and the broker is trying to get Yondu to get the orb, which is on Moray. And uh, something interesting that they don't explicitly state in the, the movie is that the reason, you know, they all happen to be getting the orb at the same time is because on Morag they have, like, 
the whole place is covered in seas. And I think every 200, or I think it's 300 years, the seas, like, go down and uh, descend to a level where you're able to get into the vault. So the orb is in a vault on Morag, and, um, you know, Star-Lord just happens to be uh, Korath and Yondu to the punch there. And um, when you're watching the beginning scene, you can actually see if you know that it's a submerged area, it's super obvious, but with how many times I've watched that movie, which, by the way, was four times in theaters, that's how much <laughs> I love this movie, um, I, I never actually noticed that, but there's, like, uh, I don't know what you call them, but you, not barnacles, is that the word I'm looking for? I don't know. When you see, like, docks that, you know, the tide's going up and down, you can see where the water was and where marine life lives um, despite the tides changing and stuff and the entire vault looks like that it's very clearly was submerged for long periods of time um, so next time you watch that keep an eye out that's kind of interesting yeah actually though, I, do, I do remember that from the comic because <clears throat> I did think that was kind of strange in the movie you know there's so much going on you don't really focus on it but the fact that like all of a sudden everyone's at the same spot looking for the infinity stone when you look back it doesn't make a whole ton of sense and then when they had that little nice explanation in the uh, in the comic about how it's because of the water levels receding and how it's only you can only access it for a certain amount of time like okay that makes a lot more sense that's why everyone is there yeah it's one of the it's one of those things that you like when you're watching the movie you don't really question too much um and i, I get a lot of stuff like that in the movie like like i mentioned in iron man 2 when you know uh whiplash is making the arc reactor i never really clued in to that too much, mostly because I, I'm sure I did the first time I watched it, but every other time it's not like really vital information that you need, but all these small things kind of, you forget about sometimes, or you know if you're not analyzing the film, it's you know it's not like necessary information, it doesn't matter that he has an Arkhamat reactor, it just matters that he's, you know, a villain and he's got something to fight Tony Stark with, and that's all you need to care about. True. Um, so... Anything else you want to say about the comics before we dig into the movie? No, no, just that they were, yeah, no, I don't have anything to add uh, about the comics. I'm very excited to talk about the movie, though. So, Guardians of the Galaxy. How many stars does this get for you? This is a five-star, this is one of the five-star MCU films for me. And, uh, yeah, just, I, I, I saw this with you on one of your, I think it was your third time seeing it, I want to say, and it was my first, <laughs> and you came to Ottawa to visit, and we saw it, and it just, it blew me away, like, it's just, it's such a funny, such a visually striking, like, it adds so much lore to the MCU, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's definitely still, to this day, one of their, one of their best, top three, top five, I always say that, but, uh. This is definitely this is definitely up there with the, the best that the MCU has done um, so far, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, and I I know you at all, you also gave it uh, five. Correct. Uh, I think it just really visually watching that in theaters, it was like what I imagine watching Star Wars for the first time is like. Like it's just the world building is is absolutely incredible and so immersive and watching it i was just blown away the entire time and it felt like a real world and the visuals were just next level the makeup was amazing um the cast was stellar the plot was fantastic the sense of humor is like it's just it really is a perfect movie um and yeah probably the single greatest uh 
MCU origin movie, you know? Yeah, and what's important going into this is the distinction between us is I knew, like most people do nothing about Guardians of the Galaxy. I knew nothing about Guardians of the Galaxy. That's why I think part of the reason it was such a success is that it was like this kind of, it was it was Marvel's biggest risk, I think, up until this point. I mean, Iron Man was was a risk when they started off. And even like supporting characters like Thor and Captain America, they didn't know that those movies were going to do as well as they did. But when they ended up turning profits, they ended up making a lot of money. You know, it was more of a safer bet. But this was like, you know, five characters that no one really knew outside of people who followed actual Marvel comics. And like, you, you know, it could seem like a weird sell. You have, you know, a talking tree, you have a, a talking raccoon. Like, it, you know, it, it sounds like it to be something that would be silly in concept, but it's anything but. It, but it, it does have silliness in it, but that's part of its charm is that it's meant to. And I just, and that, that, I think that all comes down to just like that, that James Gunn knew what he wanted to do like he seemed to have a very good grasp because James got up until this point was fairly he was another one of Marvel's kind of indie directors who hadn't really um you know hadn't done a whole lot of stuff with like big budgets like he had done um the only thing I'd seen that he had directed because he hasn't directed a whole lot by that point was uh Super which you introduced me to which I rewatched recently and it's still an amazing movie and probably played some role in getting him cast in Marvel because it was a comic based movie well it was not comic based but it was like a comic book hero in a real life situation that's why it works so anyway it was an excellent movie i never saw slither but i still really want to to this day and he wrote like the dawn of the dead remake which was fantastic so he had proven himself to do some smaller indie projects but before coming on to guardians of the galaxy he was very much a joss whedon type like he didn't know that it was gonna necessarily work out that his vision like you know being an indie director might not be able to work within the marvel hierarchy but he did, and uh, I, the, the entire success of this movie, um, not the entire success, he, he co-wrote the first one, but a great deal of the success of this movie is because of James Gunn. Definitely. Um, so many so many things to talk about here. Uh, I'll start off with Nicole Perlman. Um, so, at, at the time this movie was was uh, in the works, you know, pre-pre-production, uh, they had a bunch, Marvel had a bunch of uh, writers working on potential MCU movies, right? Um, I, I don't know what other ones, you know, didn't make the cut or whatever, but they had Nicole Perlman, I think, for two years working on a script for Guardians of the Galaxy, and uh, they they saw it and was like, you know what, I really think they, you know, we can make this work, and uh, they had, you know, James Gunn uh, polish it up with her, because I know there was, uh, I think in the original script, uh, Star-Lord actually goes to um, Spartax and meets his father in, in the original script for this movie. Um, so it was markedly different. But uh, Nicole Perlman's great. Uh, she actually wrote a solo Gamora series that I quite enjoyed. Um, so that's worth checking out. Um, and yeah, James Gunn. It's not to say about him. He's a solid dude. One of the very few celebrities I... Well, big celebrities that I follow on Instagram. Um, legit dude. Uh, he, he seems to have a friendship with Nathan Fillion that kind of reminds me of Joss Whedon, too, actually. Um, <laughs> he just, you know, needs to get into these projects. And I, I've been wanting Nathan Fillion to be in the MCU for ages, so I'm still waiting for... Uh, a permanent role there. Um, I was going to say, with the friendship, he has friendships with James Gunn and friendships with uh, Joss Whedon, and he's only had like small, a small cameo. We got to get him. Got to get more Nathan Fillion in here. Yeah. 
So, um, James Gunn has a great sense of humor. It's it's also funny too because he's he's one of those guys that because Joss Whedon doesn't need to put people in places like he he works a little you know he's got favorites obviously but like and I'm sure Colby Smolder's relationship with Neil Patrick Harris and Neil Patrick Harris's relation to Joss Whedon had some part to play in the fact that she got you know Maria Hill in the Avengers. Um, but otherwise, he didn't really stick to people from, you know, kind of his career. Whereas James Gunn has a habit of doing that. I love when people do that. Uh, which is hilarious because, like, Michael Rooker as Yondu is so iconic now. But, I mean, he literally got the role because he was like, I just loves Michael Rooker. And he's like, I need a role for you for this. And, you know, they gave him a role... Uh, that he just owned. And, yeah, uh, ain't that the truth? Yeah. So, yeah, there's there's too much to say about this movie. The the success of it was ridiculous. Um, a ton of people loved it, uh, and it's funny because so many people didn't know that it was MCU when it came out. No one had any idea it was a superhero movie. It was just you know its own thing. Even though Thanos is know a active character in the movie um which is another amazing part about it but uh it's super popular um it's funny my sister's only actually ever seen two mcu movies she saw iron man which you know not surprising and she saw guardians of the galaxy so it just goes to show how big this was when it came out and uh the success of this was what pushed people um towards a suicide squad movie which could not handle what Marvel did. They, they flopped enormously and couldn't juggle that many characters, um, which I think is interesting. You know, Justice League was their attempt at doing Avengers. They did not introduce the characters properly before doing so, and then just kind of... I don't know what happened there. I haven't seen it, but I've not heard great things. Um, and Suicide Squad did the same thing. Guardians did. Just brand new characters getting introduced to a thing, but then... Also, like, you, you think the success of the Joker and Batman would be enough to get people into it, but no, it just made things worse. Yeah. So to have these totally random-ass characters that comic fans barely know in a movie like this, and to be that successful, is, is crazy. And uh, a testament to James Gunn's mastery of the, the art. Yeah, I agree. Agreed. Totally agreed. It's, it's crazy to think. Like, in Suicide Squad, probably... Some of their characters had more recognition than the Guardians did from the mainstream. Like everyone, like most people know who like Harley Quinn was, or had an idea of who Harley Quinn was. A lot of people know who Deadshot was, but like no one knew who Star Lord was or, or Gamora. Or like I wouldn't have been able to name any of these characters by name until I'd seen the movie. And that's you're right. There was no excuse when Marvel did it so well with such unknown characters that uh, could have been that could have been introduced underwhelmingly, but they they did it because they, they was able to play to the characters' strengths that. Just like having them show up as a, like a roster call, like in Suicide Squad. So yeah, that that is a good point. Um, yeah. So we'll dive into the movie a little bit here and talk about characters as they pop up and fun things. Um, so we start off in 1988 on Earth. Uh, we got the beginning scene there. Um, I I had already had plans to see this with two coworkers when it came out 
um, but was obviously going to see it by myself first. So I'd already been like, okay, we're going out as like a out of work kind of you know bonding thing, and we're going to see this movie. And then I saw the beginning and was like, oh my god, my coworker, um, when when he was in I think high school, uh, his mom passed away from cancer, and uh, um, my my dad passed away from cancer. So watching the the intro was, you know, it, it really spoke to me, and it was it was rough, but I was like, this is Star-Lord and his mom, who is passing away from cancer. I'm like, I feel really bad to put him <laughs> in this position where, you know, we're, I'm like, check out this movie, and then, like, knowing his, you know, experiences and having to watch that, and, uh, yeah, I remember after the movie, I was like, so sorry about the beginning. I, you know, didn't plan that and then he was like yeah no at the, at the beginning i was like this is a little this is a little, a little much rough. yeah, like, yeah. Like, but uh yeah so that was a uh, an interesting uh, <laughs> there but, yeah it starts pretty heavy actually like like you know for uh mcu film like with the uh, the death of the main character's mother and his abduction like it's a you know, it's a it's a bit of a heavy. It immediately becomes a bit more whimsical and fun after that. But that is a pretty pretty heavy start for an MCU movie, Definitely. especially for a character that we haven't met before. Yeah, yeah, right off the bat. Um, also, for Marvel cosmic fans, uh, cancer is also a kind of hard hitting uh, plot uh, move that they they use there. Um, the the original Captain Marvel, who's all other Captain Marvels are a huge part of uh, Marvel Cosmic. Um, I think in the 80s when cancer was, you know, kind of starting to become a really big thing, uh, that's how Captain Marvel actually died, was of cancer. And, wow. Yeah. Never never brought back. Um, so, I'm not sure if that was a little, you know, nod to that, but uh, as we get into this, um, we, uh, we're gonna find out that James Gunn is a huge nerd and just a total appreciator of, of Marvel history and he fits as many Easter eggs and references in here as he can. It's really beautiful. Uh, I don't think any... I mean, Joss Whedon wrote Marvel Comics, but I think that James Gunn as a fan, um, getting, you know, to be in charge of this instead of a creator, uh, really wanted to fit as much in as he could. Um, so I really appreciate that. So, uh, yeah, we, we found he, he runs out, he gets abducted, um, uh, l later on, right at the beginning, I thought it was interesting after, after Peter, talks to Yondu after he gets off Morag. Uh, I think Yondu says something like, uh, um, at some point he mentions not giving Peter to his dad, which gets referenced again at the end. But yeah, right at the beginning, right off the bat, they kind of mention that Yondu was supposed to bring Peter to, to his father. And so you know that right from the get-go. Um, yeah, and 
Um, the payoff of that doesn't come until the second movie. That that's something because you know even by the end of the first movie, you still kind of think Yondu's a bit of a not like a bad guy, but he's definitely like not a villain, but he's definitely like you know out for himself. And then you realizing it's not until Guardians two where you realize like holy shit, like you know he's he was really doing the right thing the whole time. Yeah, just in a bad way of showing it. <laughs> yeah, which is interesting because what, what we see of the Ravagers in this is they're kind of like pirates, uh, which. Overall, isn't as true. I don't know. It's interesting. Their their history is a little muddled in this. Um, yeah. So we, we fast forward twenty six later years later. We see they're on Morag. Um, Star Lord's getting the the orb, um, and then he does. He uses some little gadget that like shows up a holographic vision of like what Morag used to look like back when there were people on it. And uh, there's some girl walking and then a hologram dog. And that dog is actually James Gunn's dog, Dr. Wesley Von Spears. <laughs> um, oh, nice. I'm, I'm sure at some point on his Instagram you've seen he had a little uh, chair for his dog on set at some point. Yeah. yeah I think he has a bunch of cats, too, or he has a cat, anyway, that he loves. Yeah, yeah, Emily Monster. I mean, he's, he's a huge animal person, which is great because uh rocket uh i, I read an, uh, an article where it was uh, quoting him saying how he thought that Ro- rocket was really the heart of the movie i 100 agree with that um so yeah so we have korath uh pursuing star lord um and he has uh Sakarans. Um, behind him, and this is one of those interesting, kind of complicated stuff later on. But uh, so Sakarans are native to the planet Sakar, which is where we visit in Thor Ragnarok. Oh, uh, so so these Sakarans uh, kind of look like skeleton people. Um, like their ships are called Necrocraft and they shoot Necroblasts and uh, I think uh, Star-Lord calls one of them a Ninja Turtle at some point. Uh, but so that, that's one race of Sakarans. while the other Sakarans um, look like uh, more insectoid, like Meek. Meek is a Sakaran from, from Thor Ragnarok. Mm. If, if you remember that stellar character. Oh yeah. <laughs> no, Meek's dead. <laughs> um, so so there's two kinds of Sakarans, but right off the bat, James Gunn has thrown Sakarans into here, which were originally going to be bad in, but Fox had the rights to the bad in, so they could do that. Um, so he escapes in his ship, uh, the Milano, named after... <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Alyssa Milano. Yeah, yeah, from... Uh, what would, what would it, she have been in? Who's the boss? Oh god, I don't even know back in Wendy's Leave '88. I, I actually don't know a whole lot of Melissa, Alyssa Milano movies anyway, so never mind ones from '88. But she was quite the babe, so I'm not surprised. She, uh, when when Peter was young, would have been on a an '80s sitcom. I believe it was Who's the Boss. Oh, interesting. I've actually um, never seen it. But yeah, so he's he's flying around in the Milano, and uh, some more '80s uh, fun stuff there. Uh, a troll, troll's doll is, is floating around in the background of the ship, which we see more of later. Oh, um, yeah. Which is an obvious 80s reference. But, for those who have read 
uh, Guardians of the Galaxy and Annihilation. Um, Pip the Troll is a big character and has a lot of ties to Thanos and, and you know, Marvel Cosmic. So it's also kind of a reference to that a little bit, by having an actual troll from Earth. Um, so we see Dorit, the girl, um, in his ship. Uh, I think she has ties to... I think James Gunn took her from the comics. She was a random character in something somewhere, so... Is that the one who he, who he doesn't realize is actually on the ship with him? Yeah, he forgot about her. <laughs> and uh, also interesting to notice she's wearing this shirt that Peter was wearing when he was you know seven years old or however old he was uh, when he was picked up off earth oh good call yeah which is a, a fun little nod. which makes sense because his wardrobe would be pretty limited with earth clothes by this time yeah and it, that shirt wouldn't fit him anymore but seems to fit her uh, <laughs> and then he also has his uh cassette player there on the wall uh, you know where he places jams and there's a couple 80's memorabilia on the wall there's an ALF card from the show ALF that I noticed for sure off the bat um, I'm sure there's more uh, yeah so we get introduced to Yondu who's played by uh, Michael Rooker who's, who's fantastic um, and Yondu it was an interesting choice when they that, that James Gunn wanted to put him in here he kind of wanted just to make a character for Michael Rooker, I think, but then also was like, let's take it to the next level and used one of the original uh, I think they were from the 70s, Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, which, he seems to have an interesting uh, view of, because there's I, I, I read some of the original Guardians of the Galaxy stuff, and it's a little different than the team we're going to see in Volume 2, but Yondu was one of the OGs, for sure. Um, not at all the same personality. Almost different characters, but uh, yeah, he's the last of a race from people, I think, from Planet Centauri Five, I believe. Um, and he uses his whistles to control his arrows. But he had a bow in the comics. But why why use a bow when you control the arrow with your exactly whistle? when the arrow is so effective and works so good and. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's almost overpowered to an extent. Like, it's like, you know, why why even bother with a bow? Mm -hmm. um, and it is overpowered. I, I mean, there's a scene where uh, he takes out a bunch of Sakarans on Xandar with it, and they have guns trained on him, and they don't even move. Uh, and it takes a fair bit for his arrow to go around and kill them all, but they're just, like, standing there waiting to be killed, which I thought was kind of ridiculous. But, uh... Yeah, same with Guardians 2. Like, I love it. I think it's such a cool, like, weapon. It's so, like, fun visually, and I have no issues with it. But, like, in Guardians 2, when he takes, like, the whole ship with one arrow, and it's like, that's, uh, that's an awesome, amazing scene, but just, like, it might be a little bit too overpowered. Like, uh, that, that's probably yeah. my... It's, it's a slight issue, but, like, that's probably my only issue. Just a bit too overpowered for the MCU. But then again, we are... That, that is kind of the way things go, I guess. Yeah, and I mean, at least in that, like, he was in a ship, so it's moving around the ship where he's watching with the cameras, and there's people and different things. Yeah. He's literally surrounded by, like, 16 people or something on Xandar, and they're all trained on him, and the arrow goes around and kills them all, and the last guy it kills, he's just standing there with his gun pointed and doing nothing. <laughs> Whereas it's a little more believable in Volume 2. Plus, it's the new prototype thing he has that's doing that, so it makes a little more sense. Sure. Um... 
One thing so we, I'd um, I'd like to talk about before we before we move on is yeah. um, is just Chris Pratt as Star Lord, like just how well I like, had that casting, uh, just because we might get sidetracked with all the other casting later on in the movie. Just like when this was announced, like I, I feel like I said I had no idea who Star Lord was. I like I you know I'd I'd heard I guess of them through you and stuff, but I didn't really know. I remember thinking Chris Pratt, and this was the time when he was on. Like, the only thing I'd really seen him on was, like, kind of romantic comedies where he was on, like, Parks and Rec, which he was awesome. He's my favorite character. And I was like, Andy Dwyer from Parks and Rec is going to be, like, a Marvel superhero? And then, like, I saw pictures of him getting shredded and stuff. And, and the more I came to think about it, I was like, okay, like, I'm down for this. Like, Chris Pratt is, like, you know, he seems like a cool dude. And then he came into this role and he just owned it. He has such, like, charisma, such humor. He, he's, like, you know, he just brings a lot of balance to the to the team. He's, strangely enough, he off often be, like, their logical center. He's the one who kind of, like, can talk things out a little bit. And uh, I don't know, I just think Chris Pratt, I'm glad he's had such success now and he's doing so well as a movie star. And it's all because of his role in this movie is what kicked him off. That's all I wanted to say. Yeah, definitely launched his career. Uh, I was, uh, I, I forgot to actually go over his casting as we start with his character. I'm going to with all the rest of the characters. So uh, thank you for interjecting with that. Um, <laughs> yeah, he kills it. He's fantastic. Peter Quill, uh, Iconic is the role as they tend to do, um, and yeah, I didn't I didn't see it coming either. It was a surprising casting, even even more surprising than Joss Whedon directing the Avengers. Honestly, it was, was Chris Pratt as uh, Peter Quill, and, and you know, oh, hundred percent, handling this role really made his career. You know, went from this to Jurassic World, he's around for Infinity War, and damn. Um, so yeah, we. Uh, we go on to the Dark Aster, which is Ronan's uh, warship. And we get introduced to Ronan, who's played by... Lee Pace. Lee, Lee Pace? Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, I, I'm not familiar with him. Um, I don't know if you could fill me in. Uh, he was... I can't remember his name, but he's in the Hobbit movies. He's... Uh, what's... He's... Um, oh, I can't remember his name. But he's in the Hobbit movies uh, as an elf. He is in um, a show called Halt and Catch Fire, which is probably one of the best shows of the last five years, I'd say. It's uh, about the computer industry in the 80s, and he's the, the lead character, and he is, gives one of the best performances on TV I've seen in a long time. Uh, definitely an actor I have come to quite like, and I want to see his future works with a lot of interest. I've also heard that uh, he was on a canceled show called Pushing Daisies, which is, which is supposed to be really good that I've never seen. Um, so yeah, a lot of movies where you don't actually get to see him because he like you know in the Hobbit movies he's wearing makeup and this he's wearing makeup so you don't actually get to see his uh, his face but he is a pretty talented actor whose whose career I will watch with great interest. I think I actually Star saw him in pushing pushing daisies because I know I had a friend that was obsessed with it uh, before it got canceled obviously. Um, yeah, it's on the I list of shows I want to watch. It's supposed to be amazing. Yeah, yeah, he's very like, he's, he's really tall, uh, black hair, good looking dude. But yeah, I've, I've heard pushing daisies is supposed to be one of his uh, his best. So I really want to check that out too. Um, so, Ronan as a villain isn't one of the best. Um, yeah, it's just kind of more standard take over the world, you know, or take over the galaxy in this case. But, uh, you know, it's just like, and yeah, he's definitely not one of the most deepest uh, MCU villains for sure, but I like his performance. It's just like so intense, and you can definitely feel why people can are, you know, so afraid of. of what he can do. Yeah. But yeah, definitely like a mid-tier. Like, definitely not one of their strongest villains, for sure. It's more the ensemble of heroes that, that uh, kind of lead this movie. Yeah. Um, 
And it's kind of a shame, because Ronan the Accuser is a classic, iconic Marvel character. Um, I think he's more famous than anyone else in this movie, except for Thanos. Um, and he's not, like, um, exclusively a villain in the comics. Um, I don't know that he's really much of a villain at all. Uh, so James Gunn kind of takes him a different direction and, and runs with it. Uh, and it's a shame he does not survive the movie, because uh, I like Ronan in the comics. Um, but yeah, it's it's an interesting take on him, uh, to make him kind of a, a Cree fanatic and, you know, a zealot and just over the top. Um, it's interesting. I like it. Uh, so this is, this is, yeah, this is the introduction we get to the Cree as well, um, which is, is fun. I think my favorite part about Marvel Cosmic is all the different races and the planets and stuff like that. Yeah, which uh, this movie does a lot of. In, I, Thor, to an extent, had and and Dark World had kind of introduced it, like, but but it was still mostly you know Earth set from Earth's perspective, whereas this is like entirely out. Like Earth is very in this movie very little, and it's all about like this universe outside of Earth. So it's like having to build that all from scratch is is pretty impressive, and you got to give credit to like James Gunn and like the uh, you know production designers and like the artists and stuff who like had to create all of these races. It's kind of Star Wars style, and yeah. a lot of them who hadn't even been in the MCU before and. I know they had visual reference in the comics, but as we see a lot of times, they don't actually, you know, they change that or it doesn't exactly fit what the MCU is going for, so they change their appearance or, or what have you. But anyway, they're, what I'm trying to say is that they have a great team who really made, like, a non-Earth-centric Marvel universe and allowed the cosmic part of Marvel to really blossom. Totally. Um, so we, yeah, we get introduced to Nebula as well, who's played by... Karen Gillen? Yes. Um, she's fantastic. Nebula's one of the better characters. Uh, probably the, the best villain in this, I would say, because Thanos doesn't really do much. Um, so I feel like she kind of carries the, the plot in that aspect. Um, and we get introduced to Gamora, who's played by Zoe Saldana. Correct. And she's fantastic. Um, I think Nebula's a little less known in the comics, but Gamora's a badass, um, you know, the most, the most dangerous woman in the galaxy, uh, she's, uh, a total badass, um, I specifically like her in Bendis' run of Guardians, um, post-Annihilation Nova got his own series, and the arcs with him and Gamora are just whew, next level. Um, in the comics, I don't, I don't know her origin as well, but basically, yeah, she's a daughter of Thanos and, you know, he trained her to be an assassin and then she kind of turns on him. Uh, she's the... In the comics, she's the last member of a race called the Zen Barry, and in this, uh, she's... I, I have the name written down here somewhere, but slightly different um so Gamora's awesome um I, I really like that she's kind of the love interest in this but in the two movies we see there's no there's no kiss you know it's like they don't just take a strong female character and then just turn her into a love interest she's a badass 
there's a little bit something there, but you know, she kind of tries to keep her distance from it, which I find to be great. True. Um, which is funny. I remember I was uh, back in my single days. Um, I was on uh, I don't know some dating app of some sort. And I was talking to this one girl who uh, uh, was a gamer and, and a nerd, and uh, I mentioned my my love for MCU movies and she said she didn't like them and said she hated Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, and she was one of those really edgy nerds that like try to hate on mainstream things because it's not cool. Uh, yeah, the worst and, kind. Yeah, the, just the worst kind. And I was like, I, yeah, it, 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 she ended up ghosting me. But uh, <laughs> I, I should have I should have taken that cue. Um, and she said she hated the movie because it had a contrived love story. And I'm like, but there is no, like, actual love story that's the point is you know they they like tease it but it's Gamora and they don't do that so she I don't know she found it offensive as a woman but I was like I feel like you're missing the point here yeah I'm kind of a bit lost in that one yeah um never never figured that. <laughs> uh so yeah we uh we got Thanos mentions right off the bat which is interesting because um you know we don't hear anything about Thanos in Iron Man 3, or Thor Dark World, or Winter Soldier, um, but you kind of get a tease of him at the end of Avengers, so to have a mention of him have him actually in this movie is uh, pretty bold and interesting. Yeah, and a lot of people, like, because I think that's the, the line they have to tell with these MCU movies is, like, make them for the fans, but also have them accessible for, like... The common moviegoer, like a lot of people would even stay. Like whenever I, I go to a Marvel movie, a lot of people leave. Like as soon as the credits start, like, they don't say even to the mid credit scene. So like a lot of people would not have seen Thanos in that mid credit scene, or even maybe they did and didn't recognize who he was. And then when he shows up two years later, they don't really realize it's him. So yeah, that, that's why it's interesting that they're, they're kind of it's smart. I think it was smart to give him a little bit more role in this movie while still not having him be the overarching bad villain, so we get to know him a bit better. Yeah, definitely. Um... So we see Rocket and Groot on Xandar. Um, and Xandar is interesting. So Xandar is the home of the Nova Corps, which uh, I should probably talk about now. Um, Nova is one of my favorite superheroes. Um, he's basically Marvel's ripoff of Green Lantern, um, which just kind of makes me love him more. Uh, he was created in the 80s kind of to be like a like a Peter Parker character. Um, and they literally kept with the symmetrical names and, and named him Rich Rider. Um, so, uh, the, the Nova Corps, although Rich Rider is human, um, he got his powers from a dying Nova, uh, a member of the Nova Corps, I don't mean a star. Uh, and, uh, yeah, uh, kind of used it to be a superhero at first and then, you know, went cosmic a little later. But uh, the Nova Corps are, uh, you know, galaxy peacekeeping organization, you know, just like Green Lanterns. Um, and so we have, we have Glenn Close as Nova Prime. Um, and I believe her name's Rail. I don't know how to pronounce it. R-A-E-L. Uh, and she's actually from the comics as well, um, from a, an issue of Nova during 
post Annihilation, his Volume Four run. Um, but they kind of take liberties with it again. Um, and the the Nova's more of a police force than than the Green Lantern in this. They kind of make it a little more accessible for the the, the audience. Um, and they they do all right with it. I I'm still waiting for a Nova spinoff um, and you know Rich Rider to enter the MCU, but. As Nova Corps and this is, is pretty interesting. Uh, so they take place on Xandar, and Xandarian culture's uh, very multicultural. Uh, a lot of a lot of different races on the planet, as we can see. Um, the, the Nova symbol is kind of this uh, star-looking, eight-pointed uh, star sort of thing that we see all over the architecture and on the Nova Prime, um, on, on the Nova Corps. Uh, building um but yeah we'll we'll talk about more of the members as we see more of them um so so we see rocket and Groot. so uh let's let's start off with rocket um i i highly recommend anyone who's interested in rocket check out his solo series and any that have been done are good uh scotty young was a great rocket series um he's fantastic in Bendis's run, probably the best, uh, and I actually own his 1984 miniseries that I believe he was introduced in, um, four-issue limited series, really fun. It's about his origin on Half World, which is briefly mentioned in this. Um, and yeah, for casting, they were uh, they were looking at a lot of different actors. They were looking at a lot of different voice actors and just really anybody that could do the voice of Rocket, because James Gunn had a very specific sound in mind, and uh, just happened to be Bradley Cooper. And honestly, I still, I'm impressed. Usually, when actors do voice acting, it's just their normal voice, but Bradley Cooper's Rocket voice is, to me, unrecognizable. Like, I can't tell that's Bradley Cooper at all, and he does a fantastic job. Yeah, that's why it could have been, like, I was surprised. I didn't know what Rocket sounded like, but I remember seeing, like, Bradley Cooper's, like, a sarcastic, uh, like, you know, raccoon. I was like, okay, that's some interesting casting. I'm not sure that's going to work out. And lo and behold, he killed it, so I'm not surprised. Um, and Vin Diesel as Groot is amazing uh, for anyone out there who's a fan of Vin Diesel's voice acting. Well, who, who couldn't be? He was, he was the Iron Giant. I mean, you'd have to have no... No soul at all, not to like Vin Diesel's voice acting. Yeah, so from him to go from a five star movie like Iron Giant to a five star movie like Guardians, uh, good call. Excuse me, uh, Iron Giant is like a six star movie. There, there should be some <laughs> movies that have the occasional like overcharge of stars, and Iron Giant is one of those. So, anyone who's listening, if you haven't seen the Iron Giant, it was like before Vin Diesel was famous. It's one of like the my all time favorite movies, an absolute classic. Please watch it, but uh, you get to see. Vin Diesel voice acting with also very little he says more words than I am Groot but he there's something about Vin Diesel in voice acting that if you put him in that role he can actually kill it and he does with Groot even with those three simple words yeah which is why it's so surprising that Bradley Cooper is like on the level of, of Vin Diesel there but they're a, a hell of a duo um also random reading uh for Iron Giant fans uh you specifically Check out Sentinel, um, which you should especially do because that actually ties into uh, that. That's one of the characters that's in Avengers Arena. Um, Justin, 
there's Justin say for it, I want to say. Um, Sentinel is literally Marvel's comic version of Iron Giant, but instead of finding a giant robot, he finds a Sentinel from, like, X-Men War. Oh, that sounds awesome. And it's amazing. It's actually super good. Uh, obviously not a level of Iron Giant, but it's uh, really fun to read. No, I checked that out for sure. Um, so, yeah. So, we get these guys. They're on Xandar, scoping it out for bounties. Um, we see Stan Lee's cameo. He's... Uh, Hitting on some Zandarian girl there. <laughs> Rocket calls him a Class A pervert. Very funny. Um, uh, we have Star Lord meeting the Broker, which is another. You know, we got we got Ronan the Accuser. We got Korath the Pursuer. We've got uh, uh, we got the Broker. It's, you know, the Collector, the other, another the character. Yeah, all these, all these titles. That's, that's true. I didn't really pick up on that before. Yeah, so... Uh, uh, yeah, so he... Which is funny, because he's, he's, you know, collecting the orb for the collector. Um, but when he finds out Ronan's after it, pushes him out. So uh, we have Gamora and Star-Lord's meeting. Um, this is... Uh, this chase scene's pretty great. Um, and it ends up with Gamora cutting off Groot's arms, which is the the phase two thing to do. Star yeah, Wars the arms cut off makes sense. Yeah, I love that whole opening. That whole opening, well, not opening scene, but the, where they all kind of meet each other. Just that the chaos and like that Zendarian marketplace when they're all just kind of uh, fighting one another, all trying to get the orb. It's just it's a really well done and funny introduction of the team. And even though you know they're eventually going to work together, just seeing them at odds like that and and working against each other is pretty funny. Definitely. Um, it's an impressive scene for sure. Uh, we have Rocket Swear, and I don't think like they do it enough in the series. I didn't notice any other actually reference to it, but he says uh, he calls Groot a dast idiot, and dast is like a it's a Marvel cosmic swear. Groot, sorry, uh, Rocket has a lot of them. He calls people Futakin idiots, and, and there's a couple others in the comics. But uh, so throw that in is a oh shit, good catch. Comic. I always thought he called them just a daft D A F T idiot. I never realized. Good I call. hope I'm not. I hope I'm not wrong. But Dast is a thing in the comics, so he's he's got to be saying that, or else I'm. I don't know. Hopefully, he didn't get translated wrong. <laughs> uh, no, no. I just always assumed it was Daft, just because I yeah. didn't know what the Dasts were. So you're probably. I'd say you're probably onto something. I hope I'm not wrong um, <laughs> and mixing stuff up. But yeah, so they get arrested by the Nova Corps and uh, John C. Riley, who is uh, Roman Day, uh, and the. I feel like they don't do the best job of explaining it in the comics, and it's maybe a little littered with er uh, with errors. But uh, Nova Prime is is the head of the Nova Corps, and you have rankings that are denoted by the symbol on your forehead on your helmet. Normally, they don't have helmets like that in this, so it doesn't quite work. But Nova Prime is the eight pointed star. Um, original Nova has. Uh, the bottom left and right corners off, and so it's, you know, a six-pointed star, um, and then you can have a four-pointed star for, a, a, like, below that, and if you're, like, fresh to the, the group, the lowest uh, ranking you can have, you would have a three-pointed star. It's just, like, a big T. Uh, so I forget exactly how it works, but... I think Centurion is one of the rankings, 
And one of the lower rankings is uh, Denarian. So we have John C. Riley who gets called Denarian Day. So Denarian is a ranking in the Nova Corps. Atticus, you're not allowed in here when I'm recording. What are you doing? <laughs> um, Apologies, everyone. The cat has interrupted yet again. Damn, damn, Atticus. Doesn't like the attention being drawn to me. And of course, Jeremy has unplugged something or tripped over something. God only knows. And now I can hear myself. Now my headphones are unplugged and you probably um, should we pause, or...? No, no, don't pause. Uh, okay. Let me know when you're good. Mm. Alright. Say something? Yo, yo, yo. This thing's gonna be recording your voice, which it should not be doing. What the fucking... Uh, which device did you plan in? Headphones. Okay. There we go. God, sometimes. Atticus. Fucking dick. <laughs> Alright. Um, so, Denarian Day. We know him as Roman Day. Uh, he is the Nova that falls onto Earth and gives Richard Rider his power. So, that's a really awesome easter egg from James Gunn. Great cameo. And, like, the guy's barely in the movie. How the hell did you get John C. Riley to do that? Like, that's amazing. Because <laughs> John C. Riley's the man. One of my favorite actors. Good in everything he does. Um, so, yeah, they get arrested, and we have that iconic scene where he's going through all the characters. Uh, so, you see some interesting stuff on the, the screen when this is happening. So, Gamora... We find out she's the last survivor of the Zeho Beire people, which is a, you know, interesting change in the Zenhubari, but sure. Uh, on Rockets, it actually says that his origin is half-world, which is straight from his origin. Um, it says his associates are Groot and Lila, uh, and Lila's an otter also from his origin, from half-world. I believe his love interest, um, series uh we get we get some interesting stuff on them it has his uh 13 counts of theft 22 counts of escape from incarceration seven counts of mercenary activity 15 counts of arson warning tendency to bite and uh it's interesting because it, yeah it says 22 counts of escape from incarceration and later on he tells peter he's like oh i've escaped from 22 prisons we won't be here long so Good continuity. It's <laughs> uh, a lot of prisons to escape from, too. Yeah. We, we got Groot, who uh, his species is a Flora Colossus from the planet X. Um, and that... Groot's first appearance is actually... I want to say it's during the Golden Age. It's just... I think Tales of Suspense used to have... I believe it was Tales of Suspense. I mean, Strange Tales or another random one. But Tales of Suspense used to have... Uh, random monster stories and weird things and there was yeah just one where it was like it came from planet x and it's the original root uh 
and yeah, so he's had a couple reincarnations there. This kind of took him from a random ass issue and then threw him to Guardians of the Galaxy, which I found to be interesting. In in the original, uh, Andy Lanning and I the guy's names now, but the original writers, uh, they actually had group talking in the first bit. King, King of the Four Colossus and stuff. Uh, and then at some point they randomly made him only say I am through. It's a, from what I remember, it's a little odd, but, uh, yeah, it does seem strange. So, his associates, we have Rocket and Antibius Lark, which is interesting because Groot doesn't really have much of an origin story or a backstory or anything. And I think uh, James Gunn was going to, you know, have Tibius Lark be part of his origin story, but it just never had a chance to come into the movie, so maybe in Volume 3 we'll see more about that. Um, so, so, his crimes, we got three counts of GBH. Which, uh, I don't know what that stands for. I don't know if you do. No, not clue. Uh, 15 counts of escape from incarceration. So, almost as many as Rocket. Uh, and three counts of mercenary activity. Uh, we got Star-Lord, who, on his readings, it says he has a translator implant in his neck, which is interesting information to know. Um, his associates are Yondu, uh, Kraglin, who's one of the Ravagers, who's played by James Gunn's brother, Sean Gunn. Oh, who's, he, yeah, I love him in that. Um, I'm more of a fan of him and Gilmore Girls, but he's still pretty good. <laughs> uh, and then Ravagers, uh, in general. He's got one count fraud, two counts public intoxication, one count assault, and one count illegal manipulation of a Gramosian duchess. Which is pretty funny. Very specific. <laughs> Very specific. So, they get arrested, they get taken to the kiln... That's a prison straight out of the comics, which is fantastic. Um, and that's where we see Nathan Fillion's cameo uh, as one yeah. of the prisoners, where he goes, I'm going to lather you up in Ganavian jelly and go to town. <laughs> um, and so Ganavian jelly is actually a reference to the Guna, who are a race that were servants to the Skrulls, which is another really specific Easter egg. Um, so, pretty much any race they mention in this is a race from the comics. Like, James Gunn doesn't make anything up. He dealt deep more. Uh, so Which makes sense when you have that there already, right? Why, Why you know, when you, when you can please Mar- long-standing Marvel fans and also it'll make it easier to design your world, why not use all these existing races and stuff that they've put into the comics over the years? Definitely. Um, so, we get introduced to Drax, also known as the Destroyer, so we got another the nickname. Um, he, in the comics, was quite different. He was a human. His name was. I want to say it was Arthur Douglas. I might be making this up. <laughs> I hope not, because that Drax is Arthur Douglas. Sounds pretty fucking funny. Yeah, I wonder if that was a nod to. I know it's been way too old. How old is uh, um, Easter egg? Uh, fan favorite, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. That's that's fairly old, right? The book, the book. Oh, the book is I I. It's Douglas Adams. So I'd probably say sixties or seventies. Old, definitely old. Yeah. So Douglas Adams, and then the character's name is is uh, Arthur. Once it's Arthur Dent, so Arthur Douglas. Maybe a combination of the two. Is I wonder if that was a reference when they created it. Uh, if I'm right about the name, which I could be hundred percent wrong, I feel like his name's. Arthur Douglas. Um, he was 
turned into the Destroyer by Thanos, um, which obviously is way more of a complicated backstory to fit into a movie, so they just make it that Thanos killed his, his family, his, his wife Obat and his daughter Camaria. Um, which I don't know if those names ever came from anything, because he made up the, the characters. I don't know who uh, Drax's wife was in comics, but his daughter also got transformed into someone different. She's, uh, I believe she's a telepath called Moon Dragon. Um, she had this dope green uh, cloak of some sort and uh, a bald head. Um, it's kind of funny because I feel like she had a romance with Xavier at some point. I might be 100% making this up and just lumping them together because they're both chromedomes, but uh, I feel like that was a thing. Um, could be wrong. Uh, but yeah, so that did not transfer over to the movies. Um, but Moondragon was fairly important in Marvel Cosmic. Um, and actually was lovers with Quasar at some point. Um, and Quasar, she was a member of the Guardians at another point in time. So it's kind of all connected. Um, so, yeah, we have, uh, Star-Lord meeting Drax for the first time, uh, who's played by Dave Batista? That is correct. Who was a wrestler before this. Yeah, and another surprising casting choice that kills it, although, I think before this he did Riddick? Oh, he was in Riddick, and I just watched it recently. Yeah, but like, like kind of more. This is definitely more. Watching, well, I shouldn't say that. I didn't know what he was in before, but I think I'd say it's probably one of his more acting-heavy roles. Even since I've seen him in other movies since, they've usually been kind of the strong, silent type, and he's been, they've been really good movies. But he's been just kind of like, so I, uh, yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, and he's he's fantastic in this. Uh, Drax is a great character, um, so. Star-Lord talks about, you know, this Rayjack girl that gave him this scar, and this Ascavarian girl that gave him this scar, and, you know, more more race references. Um, we, we see Ronan talking to Thanos and the Other. And the Other is the guy who was talking to Loki in Avengers, so we see him coming back, and... Uh, Ronan ends up killing him just to show that he's a badass, even though he's. I like that scene where he's trying to talk to Thanos and Thanos isn't really responding. And his uh, what's his name? The his his guy there. What's his name? The other. The other. Yeah, yeah. He just like brutally kills him when he's just been nagging at him for too long. <laughs> That's a pretty funny scene. Yeah. So, um, and then we'll fast forward to after the breakout because. Not too much happens there. Just, you know, a lot of fun scenes. Um, the leg scene is one of the all-time uh, funniest in the MCU, I'd say. Yeah, and that kind of sets Rocket as a shit disturber and a bit of a prankster. Um, so, yeah, let's fast forward to their meeting the Collectors. So we have Taylor Tavon and Karina who uh, show up. Now, Karina's another interesting reference, an Easter egg there. Karina is the name... I think her name was Karina Walters, who was the wife of Michael Korvac, 
who was tied into a lot of Marvel Cosmic stuff, and I believe Thanos at some point. The Korvac saga is a whole thing in Avengers. It's, it's huge. I, I recommend it if you want to go really deep. Um, so that's a fun little interesting bit there. Um, um, we, we have a lot of fun Easter eggs in the collector's uh, vault here, or whatever you want to call it. Um, there's a dark elf in one of the cases, which is interesting. He's um, got a Chitari in another. Uh, we see uh, right at the beginning, you got a quick uh, teaser of Howard the Duck and uh, Cosmo the Dog, who's another fantastic Marvel Cosmic character. Uh, a Russian dog in a spacesuit that has telepathic abilities. Fantastic. <laughs> um, and then. You actually see Adam Warlock's cocoon, and James Gunn said it was his cocoon, which is interesting because that pops up in a completely different place and doesn't make sense for the continuity, so I'm not sure if that's just a mindless Easter egg, but that's they, they meant it to be Adam Warlock's cocoon, and then when the movie took off, they were like, I'm going to actually put some MCU now, so not sure what the explanation for that will be. Um, and this is probably on, just like you said, like they're probably just like like a throwaway Easter egg, and if they decide they want to do more, then it's just an Easter egg, so it doesn't really matter. I, th I think I think you're right. Yeah, it could be. Just, you could you could. There's always a way to like. I mean, all it takes is just literally an interview, and then he's like, "Well, that's not the cocoon anymore." Let's say that's something. Um, which I guess is what we're gonna do soon. Uh, so this is all taking place on Nowhere, which is another famous Guardians of the Galaxy location. Uh, the severed head of a long dead celestial. Um, which is really cool. Which is super cool because uh, I think the only other reference we get to a celestial at some point is uh, his ego. I believe the ego says he's a celestial. So there's your comparison there. Um, so we have some Orloni gambling going on uh, with Drax and Rocket. Um, and probably my favorite scene in this movie is when Rocket has had too much to drink and Star-Lord's like, Rocket, you're drunk! And he goes on his giant rant about how he's, you know, Drax called him a monster and, and, and you know, how he was experimented on and put back together and he's just kind of hysterical. Every time I watch that, I get a little, a little misty-eyed. It's a super powerful scene. Um, and when James Gunn said that Rocket was the heart of the movie, I feel like that scene I don't know. Always hits me a little harder than it hits other people, and I feel like it's super underrated. Iconic. Oh, it is, that is a good scene. That is uh, that is actually quite a well done scene. I just said I like that whole kind of time when they, after they escape prison, but before Ronan shows up, because it just shows that they're just not a subtle group. Like no matter what they do, subtlety is never going to be the thing. Like they're on the run and they're already gambling, getting drunk, like making fights. You know, Drax is literally calling in their biggest enemy to come fight them. Like it just it just kind of shows that. The Guardians don't do anything with any sort of subtlety, and I, that's one thing I love about them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so they meet with the Collector. Uh, we discover that the Orb is housing an Infinity Stone, which at this point is the third confirmed Infinity Stone. Um, and that's yeah. The, that's the uh, the Power Stone. I haven't done my research yet to figure out which ones are which because the colors are actually completely different from the comics. Um, 
which is funny because I think since Secret Wars happened in Marvel, that this is another fun example of the co the MCU just changing the way the comics are. The Infinity Stones had popped up again, and Infinity is I think the the next Infinity Countdown. Maybe they're doing a new Infinity title in the comics, and I think since things have happened, the Infinity Stones have all changed color to match the colors that the comics made, or sorry, the MCU made. Which is crazy, because Infinity Stones and the Infinity Gauntlet have been such a huge part of Marvel Comics. And it just shows how huge the MCU is, that they would be changing the colors to correspond to the way they did it. Like, why didn't the MCU just do the colors the way the comics did? Probably an error, but now the comics are changing it for that, Like, which is crazy. The same thing with S.H.I.E.L.D. S.H.I.E.L.D. in the MCU is not the exact same acronym it is in the comics, and since then... I think the comics have changed to follow that. Yeah, well, it makes sense to have synergy between the two and something that's not, you know, it's just, it, I think it's, um, it's got, it probably encourages a lot of new, like, you know, readers like yourself who got, kind of came, got it, started to get into comics like a bit after the movie. It's kind of cool to see like that, uh, the synergy between the two. So I, I, I could see it. I am surprised too that Marvel would do that, but I think they realized that the MCU was going to be their biggest, like, you know, it's, it's really what's allowed Marvel to, I don't know, become like the next level type company. I don't know where I'm going with this, but uh, the, the point I was trying to make is I, I think it's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Marvel Comics almost filed for bankruptcy. I think they might have at some point. Um, yeah, it just shows that the Marvel Studios with Feige is the complete opposite of that. They're really cool. Um, so, yeah, we get introduced to the Infinity Stones. That's where we see the Tesseract and the Ether, and, you know, you kind of realize it's all... We knew they were Infinity Stones since Thor Dark World when Sif and uh, uh, Volstagg mentioned it, but this is kind of where they're like, these are the three, and we're like openly talking in a movie about the Infinity Gems, and it's funny that that happens in Guardians of the Galaxy, which is a movie that a lot of people don't realize it's even connected to the MCU. So, um, he talks about wielders of the stone, uh... I'm not quite sure what they are, but the, the big giant thing with the staff that mows down entire civilizations with it, um, that definitely has ties to Marvel Comics somewhere. Uh, then they talked about a group that tried to wield the power together, which I feel like is kind of a reference to the Illuminati, which is, you know, specific members of the Avengers that each held a stone and, and in secret, you know, did what was best for the world there. Super interesting group that I haven't read enough about, but uh, I recommend people look it up. Um, and, uh, yeah, so at some point we have this, uh, this battle going on on, on Nowhere here. Nebula says to, to Gamora, um, of all our siblings, I hated you the least. So, they're daughters of Thanos, there are other siblings. I assume Korath is one of them. Um, yeah, so your assumption would be right from that, I'd say. Yeah, uh, and the rest are the Black Order. Is what it seems. So we're gonna see them in, uh, in Infinity War, and their names are Corvus Glaive, Ebony Ma, Proxima Midnight, and Cull Obsidian. Um, so I feel like all their names have black somewhere in there. Uh, you know, Obsidian, Midnight, Ebony. I'm sure Corvus probably means black in some language. Uh, they actually appeared in the Infinity uh, event that I have the issues of in 
read, but I remember I was so confused what was going on at the beginning that I didn't really process a lot of it. Um, they were in Secret Wars and stuff like that with Thanos, but uh, yeah, so more extracurricular reading for you guys. Um, we have Rocket uh, trying to blow up the Ravager's ship with his Hadron Enforcer that he says is a weapon of his own devising. It's kind of funny. Um, and then, uh, so yeah, after all this happens, they're making the, um, the, uh, the plan or whatever to take out, um, take out, uh, Ronin, right? Yeah. And they have this moment, and, you know, uh, Star-Lord says he has a plan. He says, well, part of a plan. And then they say, how much of a plan? He goes, 12% of a plan. <laughs> and I didn't realize it, but that's uh, a giant Avengers reference there. Um, uh, when, when Tony's talking to Pepper in uh, um, Dark Tower, he, uh, he says, oh, it's our baby. You should give yourself some of the credit. Give yourself 12% of the credit. And then... Uh, he goes, weren't we having a moment? And then later on, Pepper goes, I was having 12% of a moment. Oh, so there's a numerology actually paying off right there. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't expect that. Um, yeah, of all that of all things, is quite a surprise. Yeah, so so I didn't realize that until now. Uh, that whole scene is so awesome. Them uh, them having that 12% of a plan discussion, just them like arguing it out. It's just they, they already have such, like in this first movie, I, f I find... It can take a little bit of time for, like, banter to build and be natural, you know, and, like, between the characters. But this movie, they just kind of have, like, that banter right off the bat. And that whole scene is such, like, it's so indicative of that. When, when, when it ends with them all standing up and Rocket makes a joke about us standing around like a bunch of jackasses. I just think that is one of the, like, b best scenes of the movie. Definitely. That whole, that whole bit's great. Uh, yeah, when he's like, I see a bunch of losers. I mean, like, people that have lost stuff. <laughs> and uh, I think my favorite part, and I, I seem to quote this movie a lot, uh, like, like one of the most quotable Iron Man lines, for me personally, is, uh, Tony Stark built this in a cave with a box of scraps! And uh, my favorite Guardians of the Galaxy line to, to reference is, uh, that's a fake laugh! It's totally real! And he's, he, Rocket's got his fake laugh going on, and he's, he's saying it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, we have uh, we have the music queuing up as they get ready, which uh, we should probably take a moment to say that uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1, that soundtrack is, is next level, and obviously it was a huge part when the movie came out. Um, I, I played that at work a lot. And, yeah, how have we not talked about the soundtrack yet? Yeah. That's kind of crazy. That's another reason that Suicide Squad was trying, clearly trying to be a ripoff of Guardians of the Galaxy. Is they were trying to do the same thing. We're like, we're going to use all these classic songs. Oh, but we're also going to new, use new songs like Eminem without me, and, and we don't know what we're doing. Yet. Yeah, there was no uh, like you know um, continuity among the music. You'd have like a '60s song one second, or like a modern day like uh, Rick Ross song another. And there was no, but this was like it was kind of the classic, like you know the good feel-good classic rock that's what without this music i think not that the movie would have suffered but part of the identity of this movie is the music it's just like the the, the songs that he chose were like you know you've got hooked on a feeling which became like 
huge after the movie came out, even though it's an old classic song. You got Spirit in the Sky. Yeah, I think they do I Want You Back by the Jackson 5. Cherry Bomb when they're, rock, you know, when they're getting set up and going off to fight him. Oh Child when he's singing at the end. Like, just so many great, great, great songs in this uh, soundtrack, which I think uh, Volume 2 continued as well. It's just like the, the idea that the, the music is part of the identity of the movie is, is never more at play than in this movie right here. And literally part of the plot and the story, which is also awesome. Like, he's, yeah. he listens to that tape that he got from his mom. And then, you know, even at the end, he has volume two when he finally opens up the present his mom gave him when she was dying after, you know, 26 years. And then literally the sequel is called volume two. Like, it's just, it was iconic and really smart and clever and kind of a big part of why this movie was so successful and so good. Um, I never listened to volume two soundtrack as much as volume one, but rewatching it, I think that uh, I might even like it better. I don't know. Yeah, it's got some great songs. I love, love, love the way that he, that he uses, uh, like, The Chain by Fleetwood Mac when he's uh, oh, fighting awesome. Ego. Like, yeah, just like just stuff like that. Like, the music can, can add to it. it. It wouldn't really have as much effect in other Marvel movies. Like, it's fun when you hear music, and other, but it's just, like, it's, it's linked with it. Like, if they did Guardians of the Galaxy 3 and there was no mixtape volume 3 or Zune or whatever, have, you know, what have you, I'd be, <laughs> I'd be devastated. One of the best jokes also. But we'll get to that. That's Guardians 2. <laughs> it's the Zune. <laughs> Yeah. The fucking Zune. Um, yeah, so so we have yeah, fantastic soundtrack. Just throw that out there. Uh, probably just in pop culture, like classic rock hasn't been this popular since Rock Band. Like, remember when Rock Band came out and everyone was listening to all this music and it was on everyone's playlist? Like, this was kind of like a second coming of that. It was like James Gunn was bringing it back and all of these songs got big again. Which is a damn shame, because these songs should always be uh, listened to. Totally. Um, so, so yeah. So we have the whole uh, Ronin takes the, the Power Stone, puts it into his hammer. He turns his back on Thanos, and he's going to destroy Xandar himself, right? They tip uh, the Nova Corps off, and it's this whole you know plan to go in and destroy Ronin. Um, so... We have this big, you know, battle in the sky with the Ravagers versus the Sakara Necrocrafts. Um, the Nova Corps get involved, which is interesting too because their ships are are in the you know eight pointed star design of the Nova Corps symbol, which is a fun nod. Um, and then there's the the really salty guy uh, that goes, "What a bunch of a holes!" Uh, earlier <laughs> in the film. And he actually dies during this battle. But his name's Denarian Saul, which was another nod I actually picked up on. Like, it, once I realized Denarian wasn't their name, it was their rank, I was like, holy shit, that's Roman Day. I, as a huge Nova fan, am into that. Uh, and I highly recommend everyone check out all of Nova's series. Uh, volume 4, post Annihilation, is, is probably my absolute favorite. Um, volume 2 and 3 are all right. Starts getting, you know, as they are getting into New Warriors, which uh, should be noted, Nova is an original member, OG member of the New Warriors, who are getting their own TV show at some point uh, in the MCU, right? Uh, are they? I, th- I think it's MCU. Don't quote me on that. I'm not. I'm not too sure. To be quite honest, I don't know anything about that uh, from the MCU. That doesn't mean it's not a thing. Um, I'm just not sure. I'm ninety percent sure uh, they have it on the side of. of, of uh, 
Reddit's MCU um, subreddit. But uh, yeah, so uh, but Nova Volume One, which I think generally called the Man Called Nova. Um, I don't remember how many issues that was, but that's iconic stuff there. Uh, highly recommend everyone read that from the eighties. Little Spider-Man tie-in in one of the issues. Um, Garth and Saul is uh, a Zandarian member of the Nova Corps who um, becomes a villain called Supernova. So this guy who dies is that same character, which is a shame because Supernova is a dope villain um, as far as Nova villains go. So another interesting uh, cameo there. Um, it wouldn't be a Road to Infinity War podcast if I didn't mention feminism at some point. Uh, so, so the thing about Drax is that he's super literal, right? At least in this, which is not a Drax thing in the comics at all, might I add. Um, he's, he's just a destroyer, but they, you know, they needed to give him something that, that you know added to the hilarity of the of the film. So uh, they make him super literal, and he doesn't get metaphors and stuff like that, which is a huge joke throughout the series. Yeah. <laughs> which I like. It's it's a very I, I love that his sense of humor. And, well, not sense of humor, just his character, I guess. Yeah, so so he has this line where he's talking about, you know, you, dumb tree, you are my friend. And, and yeah, like, Groot is dumb. He's, he's not the brightest guy. Um, and he, you know, talks to all the members, and then he goes, you, green whore, you are also my friend. <laughs> and it's, it's a funny line, but someone on... I think James Gunn did a Q&A on Facebook, and someone was like, hey... So if Drax is literal, why does he call Gamora a whore? Because she is not a whore, literally. So it's like, by having someone who says things literally use a really demeaning word for a woman to Gamora, it's kind of sexist and, like, low-key misogynistic. And James Gunn was like, yeah, you know what? You're right. I apologize. And it, it was kind of a mistake. And explaining it canon-wise, maybe, you know, Drax thinks she's a whore. I don't know. I don't really know how to explain it. But James Gunn, like, just owned up to it, and he publicly apologized and was like, I'm sorry. You know, I'm not going to do that in the future. And, like, that's something I'll look into. And I think that is the difference between James Gunn and Shane Black. And, like, I don't, I don't know what Shane Black would be like if someone brought this up, but it's like, you know, being a white male in this day and age, like, there's a lot of subtle sexist things that you'll say that you might not realize, especially as a writer. It's, you know what I mean? Like, Joss Whedon has his moments with the Prima Nocta thing in Age of Ultron, and and I think the best you can do is just own up to your mistakes and keep an open mind and just try and do better. And I think that James Gunn is just a super down-to-earth, really open-minded, well-meaning guy, and I respect the hell out of him. So I thought I thought that was really interesting because it's like you see these things popping up, you know what I mean, with Age of Ultron and the whole uh, sexist bit where people were like, "Oh, Joss Whedon saying that you know women who can't have children are monsters." Like that blew up, and everyone heard about that, and no one heard about the response. But like James Gunn handled this question so well that it it made news and it made articles uh, not on the news news, but like it made articles about his response and not about the mistake itself. And I feel like that's worth applauding the man for. 
Interesting. Um, and, and one of the reasons I still follow James Gunn on Instagram is what a guy. Um, <laughs> and he's famous for, for fan responses and just being super great. Uh, yeah. Yeah, well, it's good when he's someone who's, you know, like, respects, like, where they are, like, still, you know, like, gives love to the fans and everything. Because he, he knew, like, he made a lot of indie movies at the start, and, like, the people who supported those are what allowed his career to become what it is. Yeah, and as a huge fan of Marvel himself, uh, I respect his his love for the fans and respect for the fans. Because I know he's, as a creator, has dealt with a lot of people that are fans saying a lot of dumb, ignorant shit, and... It's hard to not let that cloud your judgment of what people are. Like, he's seen the worst that people can be in a lot of instances in the time I've been following him on Instagram. And he, he handles it with an open mind and, you know, realizing that people can be better, and I respect that. Um, yeah. Way to stay positive, buddy. <laughs> yeah. I, can, I imagine it's probably tiring dealing with that. Because, like, 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 Star Wars fans, Marvel fans can be... Uh, most fandom can be pretty brutal and, you know, the, the way that they can treat adaptations they don't like or there's not, you know, it doesn't live up to exactly how they had it in their mind, which I find is definitely the case with Star Wars. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that can be, that can be like, you know, probably annoying to deal with after a while and, like, having, being positive about it would help. Yeah. Have you seen the, I've seen Star Wars anti-feminist edits. Have you seen those? Oh, yeah. Uh, no, I, I wouldn't bother to watch them, no. No, yeah, not actually, like, visually seen them, but, like, heard of their existence. I've, I've like, seen them online for downloaded and stuff, and I'm like, what trash of a human being would put time and effort to make something like that? Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Yeah, no, no, it's, it's fucked. Like, that's what I mean. That's, see, that, to me, is way, like, that's, like, active, like, like hurtful. Like, that that's the type of sexism that just is, like, it's, it's insane. Like, like, how, like... Some of the strongest characters in Star Wars are have been female characters, and I. But that's a whole. That's just that's just humanity. That's just like how shitty we can be as a species. We'll mention this in our Star Wars podcast. TBD. TBD. Um. Yeah. So we got we got the battle in the Dark Aster. Um, uh, and then Groot dies. Oh, we are Groot. That, that 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 might be the best scene in the movie. That's just such like a beautifully done scene. Like as they're going down, you think that there's they they all realize that there's no hope, and then just the way he says "We are Groot," that's like yeah. that was that was a payoff. That was really well done. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's interesting how this has happened because people like in Volume Two, uh, James Gunn had this huge rant where he said that Groot was completely different now, totally different personality because you know. He grew from scratch, from a twig, and is aging again. Um, and then it wasn't until recently that he said, like, adolescent Groot is Groot's son. Groot died in Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I hope I hope he changes his mind on that, because that I will not be happy about that. There's, no. there's that. Unless it's some comic standpoint, I don't see any reason. Like, this is... This is a universe where people can cheat death, and like we can accept kind of. Well, I've accepted some things in the MCU that aren't very realistic, and I'm fine with it because it's Marvel. And like one of the things I would have an easier time is accepting is that Groot just all you know he just he did like get injured, but he's coming back. Like you know we just yeah. If that's the case, I'm not going to be happy with it. That's, that's for sure. That's what he said. Uh, wow. 
Which, and, and James Gunn is a huge fan of not just killing people and bringing them back as comics do. He's, he hates it. Uh, which, I mean, I have different opinions on. But, uh, but it's weird because he's kind of said that Groot's a different person. He's like, his personality's different. And a lot of, he's like, so I guess I didn't come across enough in, in the films. I feel like he could have been a little more explicit about that. And it's interesting that only recently he's, you know, started to use the, you know, were dead, that did die. Um, which does make sense, because he, yeah, like, everything that he is, he is growing from a twig, but, like, it's not like his memory's back. He has a completely different personality. He's totally different. Um, and it's not just a, an age thing, so um, when Groot grows up again, I think he's supposed to be just, like, a different Groot. Oh, that actually affects my opinion of the movie a little bit like oh, that's still there's still both amazing and stuff but that uh, that is not a creative decision i'd be happy with it just it, there's no need for it you, you, like it's this is a movie with the talking raccoon like in you know space travel and i could i could buy the tree being destroyed coming back and still being the same tree you know yeah but at the same point so his argument is that it kind of weakens the moment if we didn't die there you know what i mean why was rocket crying if you know Root just came back it's like it's like the grief that he had isn't real. It was just a cry until he found out that he was real, right? And also, there's no moment where Rocket's like, oh, man, I'm so glad you survived, and you're back, and you're slowly growing to where you were before. Um, but at the same time, because he's not explicit about it, he kind of leaves it open for people to, like, be allowed to think what you want. But, you know. Yeah, well, Rocket would know something about Groot's biology, but he's not, like, a biologist. Like, if, if Groot's ever been in an experience where he died before and all he can say is I am Groot Rocket would have really no idea what death could be like so that's totally. I, it's just the situation I think is easy for them, him to back out of and, and I it just I don't like that I, I don't like the idea of Groot not being the same Groot from the first movie it's just kind of I, I see what he said like, like like that's why I think they didn't bring Coulson back in any of the Avengers movies for other reasons too but like his death it might have impacted if he came showed up in Age of Ultron and you know after he died and that was like a crux for them for him to show back up would probably be jarring even though he is still alive in the MCU but that's a whole different story but anyway just long story short i if that is the case i won't be happy it's not going to affect my opinion of the movie but it i i, I don't like the idea of group not being the same group i mean i guess we'll see when he grows up um what he's like but uh just a thought to keep open um yeah uh so yeah so we have uh the you know ronin uh drax i think uses the hadron enforcer again and uh hits the hammer and the power stone comes out and um you know star lord's able to grab it because he's got celestial blood in him uh which we don't know at the time but we know that he's later on we find out that he's half human we don't know what his father was but it's something ancient um so that's probably why he was able to hold it as long as he did and then you know he grabs it and has everyone's hands, and they're kind of, you know, it's a reference to the group of people that held onto the power for just a little bit. So, Rocket, Drax, Gamora, and Star-Lord holding on to the power of the Infinity Stone, and as a group, using it to destroy Ronan. Um, who is one of the few villains that, like, straight up dies. Um, yeah, yeah, he's added to, like, the Red, well, not Red Skull, because he, he doesn't straight up die, but, like, Killmonger, he's added to, being added to those enlisted MC villains who, yeah, are actually dead. Ah, uh, you know what, actually? I would say more like Red Skull, uh, because I was thinking about this. I forgot to write it down. But uh, it is very possible that Ronan 
got sucked into the Power Stone the same way that Red Skull got sucked into the Tesseract. Uh, ah. So there's a thought there. Um, I can't see them actually... That, that, that's cool. Uh, cool idea. I can't see them actually playing that out story-wise, so I think for all intents and purposes, both Red Skull and Ronan are dead, but I think yeah. you're right that they could be, like, in theory alive in those. That's, that's, that's quite interesting. If this was in comics, someone would totally bring them back to There, it. So, there you go, yeah. That's so it's one of those things where, you know, you can have it both ways. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we have, uh... Um... We have, uh, Yondu getting the, the troll and the, the orb instead of the infinity stone, um... He, him, and Craglin are talking, and they, you know they're like, "Oh man, I'm glad we didn't deliver heat to his dad like we wanted." And they go, "Yeah, that guy was a jackass," which uh, we don't realize how important that'll be for the second one. But uh, um, I also find it interesting. Uh, Andy Circus is such a famous actor for you know being in mocap suits and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And Sean Gunn, who plays Craglin, was actually the mocap guy for Rocket. Yeah. Which is funny because then Andy Serkis pops up in Avengers Age of Ultron. So, uh, and as a real person for once, which is ridiculous. Um, yeah, true. It actually seems like a real... It's weird seeing Andy Serkis in the flesh. <laughs> yeah. Feels unnatural. Um, which, the way his character was, I feel like they probably could have mocapped him later if they wanted to keep him around. But So maybe that was a potential that they were messing around with. But uh, yeah, one of my one of my favorite pictures from the production of the movie is uh, Dave Bautista as Drax uh, when he's petting Rocket after he's crying for Groot. Um, it's him petting Sean Gunn in a, in a <laughs> green mocap suit, and it's just yeah, I've seen that picture. I like that, and he's got the same expression on his face as as Rocket does, and uh, it's pretty great. Um. So yeah, we have uh, John C. Riley, Denarian Day, Roman Day there. Um, you know, thanking Star Lord for saving his family and stuff like that. Uh, and we have a fun little nod there where you know, Gamora's talking to Drax and he's like, "Yeah, well, we Ronan's dead now. Like your family's been avenged." And he goes, "Oh, Ronan was a puppet. I I have to kill Thanos now." And that's literally Drax's purpose. Was which is weird because I think he was created by Thanos though, but. The, the purpose of his existence. I mean, he's the destroyer, but he's supposed to destroy Thanos. So maybe Thanos didn't create him, but, but that's his whole purpose. So the fact that he needs to kill Thanos is like literally what his character is. Well, that makes sense. The destroyer. Yeah. Um, we see little Groot Jr. there, probably. <laughs> uh, in classic scenes. Uh, yeah, it's a, that's a very funny scene where he's, where he's dancing and Drax keeps looking over. Yeah. That was uh, James Gunn's dance, hey? Oh, really? He was doing the dance, and they, like, recorded it and used it to animate group there. <laughs> Another clever use of motion capture. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, and then we see... Um, yeah, so so Xandar, where the Novacore are uh, in Annihilation, I think it happens. Uh, they literally destroy Xandar, and the entire Novacore is destroyed. So, in the comics, Rich Rider becomes uh, um, Nova Prime, and, uh, you know, has... How, how it works in the comics is they have the Nova Force, which is, like, an entity, and so the Nova Core shares this power, this Nova Force. But when he's the last Nova left, 
he's wielding the entirety of Nova Force by himself, so he's, like, ridiculously powerful. Um, and later on, more people start uh, joining on, and he gets to, you know, ease that burden off a little. But, uh, yeah, so Infinity War, I 100% think that Thanos is going to destroy Xandar, and the Nova Corps is going to be murdered. So, Ooh, well, that'll be dark, but that would make sense. That's what I see happening. Be prepared. Um, yeah, so post credit scene, we have uh, Howard the Duck, voiced by uh, Seth Green. Another clever little one that I like. I, I like those, like like we've talked about those those funny ones that don't necessarily add to the plot. But that one is definitely one of the more unexpected ones. Like, uh, I, have you ever had the pleasure of seeing the original Howard the Duck movie? No, I haven't. It really is as awful as as everyone says. Like, it is one of the worst things I've ever seen, and I would highly recommend watching it when uh, whenever you're bored and want to watch a terrible movie because it lives up to the terribleness. You know, you, you might not think it's as bad as people say, but it is. So it's kind of funny to see that character of all characters because you forget he's a Marvel character and that, that was I think the first Marvel adaptation like the, uh, yeah. they show up yeah, yeah right well, isn't that crazy so th- to see how far I think it came out in 86 so that was th- just over 30 years ago the first Marvel movie came out and it was Howard the fucking duck <laughs> <laughs> and then we got Cosmo again the dog uh, yeah that's that's that movie um I'm thinking while we're recording, we just dive straight into Volume 2. Yeah? Okay, we can dive into two. Save it on one file, because, I mean, it's going to be one week, so we might as well just fit it all into one here. That sounds um, like a plan. So, I can't believe they fucking did this. Uh, I was so really into the idea of all the preludes they've been doing for the movies and how the comics were so great. Uh, you know, the Winter Soldier Infinite comic was all right, but Thor Dark World prelude was pretty great. Iron Man 3 prelude was awesome um and then they made a guardians of the galaxy volume 2 prelude have you read it uh no there's a guardians of the galaxy 2 prelude <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's the name of it and then you oh the adaptation it's it. an adaptation right it's an adaptation of guardians of the galaxy volume 1 but it's called guardians of the galaxy volume 2 prelude oh no they do that with all like i think that's how the way it works with like all of them now like like the way we were doing it early on was more but see, it's weird because Black Panther prelude was an actual prelude, but like, well, I, I know... assume Doctor Strange prelude is an actual prelude because there's there's not really any sequel to any other ones that we see. So uh... Doctor Strange's, but like the Civil War, no, there's a few preludes that are just yeah that are just adaptations, and I guess Guardians of the Galaxy is one of them. Did you read it? Yeah, and it adds absolutely nothing. It was a goddamn waste of my time. Uh, I think Will Corona Pilgrim wrote it, maybe, but. Uh... Yeah. So there's no way I can convince you just not to read the adaptations. I guess you're going to torture yourself and read all the adaptations anyway? Yeah, because Iron Man 2 adaptation was awesome. And, no, Iron Man 1 adaptation? Whatever one that Rhodey rode the armor in. That one was great. And I wish they'd do more like that. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, I, I like the the preludes, but you know, I that's why I stay away from adaptations. But like, I, I have the same as you. Like, I like like going into Black Panther, and then when I read the prelude for that, I was like, oh, this adds like quite a, like you know not a whole lot, but I have a little bit of knowledge of some relationships and stuff that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And that's why I like about the preludes. So for the sequels, I would watch out for the preludes. But yeah, like Black Panther, or Doctor Strange, there's no prequel to it, so there's no chance for them to adapt something else. They have to give you an actual prelude. Very true. Uh, so yeah, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two, directed by James Gunn again because the man's a master. Uh, this takes place, I believe, six months after Guardians of the Galaxy Volume One. 
Yeah, definitely, definitely quite shortly after, which is I think one of the shorter time jumps between MCU movies, uh, like direct sequels. I think this is one of the short. Maybe Iron Man and Iron Man Two. I think were about six months, yeah. but uh, definitely a shorter period of time than we're used to. So this was a little weird of the time gap in that this movie came out uh, in Phase Three, but chronologically it's taking place before Age of Ultron. So start out in Missouri in 1980, and we have. Peter's dad and Meredith Quill on Earth join their time. There's a Dairy Queen. There's a fun little commercialism in there. Um, <laughs> I, I found it interesting because uh, after the interview came out, which I watched at your house, yeah? The interview for what? Oh, the, the, the movie, the, movie. the interview? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Uh, I think over uh, Christmas. Yeah, so... After that came out, uh, what was it, Kim Kim Jong Un? Yeah, uh, he was really unhappy about that, right? Yeah, very unhappy. But he's always unhappy. So James Gunn had a uh, a list on his Instagram, and he was like, "Well, I guess uh, that's one possibility crossed out." And it, it was like list like who is Peter Quill's father, and then it had a bunch of names, and one of the names was King. Jong Un, and he crossed it out, uh, which which was hilarious post. Um, and in it, he actually had Jason of Spartax, who is his father, in the comics. So I was like, well, what do you mean who is his father? Obviously, that's his father. Um, he did not go that route. He decided to make Ego, the Living Planet, uh, his father, which is interesting. Yeah, fun fact. Um, uh, this is a hard one for me. I rated it five the first time I saw it, and then afterwards I was like, you know what, I feel like this is a four and a half. But honestly, watching it, um, it has a better villain than Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1. And I, I feel like it should be a five-star movie. I, I gave it four and a half because... There's just kind of something missing from it, but maybe it's that volume one just like was so crazy and and it had this whole feel of being Star Wars and it was just new. But honestly, I don't know how they could have done a better job to get it to be a five star. Yeah, I kind of feel the same way. I also see it four and a half and I can't exactly identify what it is that keeps it from being a five for me, but I, I love it and I think it's an awesome movie. I think James, I think it was, I think you're right. I think it was just. With the first Guardians of the Galaxy, no one expected anything, or no one, you know, like, anyone outside my own fandom didn't really have expectations, so it was, like, such... And when a movie like that, I, I find when a movie takes you by surprise, it's always, you know, going to get more attention than when it doesn't, and, like, that one, I think, definitely did take a lot of people by surprise. So I think by Guardians 2 came out, everyone knew, like, people actually knew who Star-Lord was, knew who Gamora was, like, they knew these characters. So it kind of makes sense to me that the reaction wouldn't be quite as strong, just because... It, even the sense of humor and stuff, it, it's already been done, but that's, I don't see that as a bad thing. I think J James Gunn has a successful formula, or developed a successful formula that should never had any indication that it was actually going to be successful, and it was, and then just stuck with it for two. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with sticking with what worked, and I don't, and I think that's maybe what keeps it, from, I don't know. That, that's the same thing for me. It's four and a half, but I, I can't exactly say why. I, I think... Overall, Guardians of the Galaxy should maybe be a four and a half movie, but it's just that 
they did such a fantastic job at introducing these new characters and the soundtrack and so many original ideas were thrown into that and um him introducing all these characters and and doing it so well in a way that suicide squad tried to do and couldn't i think gives it the five star because overall it's just it's a really funny plot the plot's pretty good the villains aren't super great like it it shouldn't necessarily be five star and it might be for me, honestly, I think it might be one of the weaker five-star movies uh, overall when you start thinking about the villains and stuff. Wow. It's just it's just that they they took on so much for a movie and pulled it off that I feel like it has to get that five-star. Oh, interesting. For me, it's just five stars by default. I just think it's just such a well-done movie. I, would, I don't think I'd ever consider rating that one lower just because I think it does so many things well. But that's, a, that's an interesting point. I mean, I, I would never think to bring it lower per se. It's just that like I can't... I can't really justify giving volume two five because of the Marvel standards. So I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I saw the first one four times in theaters. So that says something. And I saw the second one once. So I don't know. But like rewatching it, honestly, it has a better villain. Uh, the plot is really good. They, he, he goes above and beyond the Easter eggs and, you know, nerdy stuff. Um, and... He, uh, he, he does, like, he introduces these characters. So for the sequel, like, what are you supposed to do with these characters? We know them. We know who they are. Now you have to delve more into them. And he goes into every single character's backstory and just delves on them a little more. And there's really no flaws to it. So it's, like, hard to say why it's not a five-star. I don't know. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm in agreement. Um, so yeah, we have uh, we have Kurt Russell as Ego. The fact that you phrased that as a question, I I'm gonna let that go. Um, I'll let that I'll let you get a pass for that one. But yes, that is the legendary Kurt Russell, perfect casting as as uh, Quill's dad because Chris Pratt in some ways reminds me of a young Kurt Russell, not quite on the same acting level, but also like uh, you know I love them both. And uh, and yes, to answer your question, yes, that is Kurt Russell. I'm, I'm I'm quoting it as a question because I I am sure it's Kurt Russell, but I actually don't know Kurt Russell as an actor almost at all. Um, so the fact that I know his name as well as I do is a testament to how fantastic he is. Um, wow, I'm I'm just I'm I'm literally reevaluating my friendship with you right now. The fact that you. will Kurt Russell, just like one of my, one of the great, one of the greats, The Thing, Escape from New York, like, he always oh, just, he's the man, but I'll, I'll save that for another day. Uh, I have seen The Thing. And that is, and I, I must have known he was in it, that's a fantastic Oh, it's, that is uh, fantastic. Yeah, um. He's made some good ones yeah, lately, too, like he was in Deepwater Horizon, he was in, uh, awesome movie called Bone Tomahawk, so he's like, he's been, he's been sticking around, he's just, uh. Yeah, he just he just aged magnificently. Yeah, damn. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. I know. Paul uh, Rudd, Jess, uh, huge fan of his. Um, I haven't actually. Yeah, I haven't seen Escape from New York or, uh, but I've, but I've heard it's legendary. Um, so one day I'll get around to watching that. But uh, yeah, so he's fantastic as Ego. Um, we we see his uh, relationship with Meredith Quill at the beginning, which is interesting. Um, and then we fast forward three, four years later. Um, 
I, I love the intro scene. They're all fighting this creature called an abelisk that James Gunn actually made and is not from the Marvel comics, which is interesting. Like, it's um, because he takes so much from the comics to create something new and give it a normal name, like, like give it a new name and stuff, it's like, it's kind of more impressive. Like, I'm like, you you can do both, and that's great. Like, he's like, I've taken so much from everything, so, like, let's add something new completely. Like, that's it's kind of a cool call. Yeah, interesting. Um, first Easter egg that I didn't notice until after. So, Peter Quill's trying to track this thing. And he's got a piece of equipment that's actually a Mattel football game from God knows what <laughs> days or something. Um, and if you look at it, you can literally see like football linebackers or whatever on the screen part for it. It's pretty funny. Um, uh, so again, he, he flawlessly manages to find ways to you know input the Volume Two soundtrack into the movie when Rocket is trying to play the music and. Uh, yeah, we have we, we get introduced back to the characters right away, and it's it's great. Groot is a baby now and is freaking adorable, but he's also an idiot. And he's kind of crazy. Yeah, like how he's um, he's really dumb and just kind of like getting in these situations where he doesn't realize what's happening. I think it's hilarious. Yeah, it's super funny. Um, Peter and Gamora are a little weird at this point, which is kind of fun. Um, you know, she's got a gun, and he's like, "Oh, you, you have a gun now? I thought swords were." can't use a sword for a thing like this. You need a gun. He's like, oh, I thought guns were my things, but yeah, you can have a gun too. That's cool. Sure. Yeah, and I like that. Immediately uh, picking up with the banter that he had done so well in, uh, in part one. And then the, the, that part two where Rocket's saying how he, uh, you know how Peter wants the music set up? And Peter's like, no, that is absolutely not a priority right now. Like, just just the stuff like that. Like, you can tell he, <laughs> yeah. He's like, I actually agree with Drax on this. This is not important. He's like, what? Just that banter they have. It's so well uh, done. Yeah. Yeah, so we got Drax being an idiot as usual, and he's he's a little over the top in this movie, but I kind of like it because it just oh I love it. I don't know. He's he's angry in the first one and just pissed, and now that he's like dealt with that, he goes back to just being hilarious and laughing at stuff, which he tends to when he's not you know busy on trying to kill Ronan, right? So the fact that he's like that most of the movie is fitting and makes sense. Um, uh, Gamora. Ends up busting out her Infinity Blade there to take out uh, the Avalisk, which is which is great after she's got her gun. So I appreciate that because Gamora and her sword is something else. Um, and then yeah, Rocket is trying to set up music, which is totally unnecessary. And then it starts his kind of like just being a dick for the sake of being a dick. The entire movie kind of character arc, which I really love for Rocket because like. It just kind of shows how self-destructive he is, and I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah, that might be one of my few not complaints. I just don't know if, for me, Rocket's character with being a dick was as executed as it was meant to be. Maybe that's one of the things that I one of the few complaints I have about the movie. I, it just yeah, I I I, I don't mind you know characters being dicks, but just Rocket's like so over the top that it's like it's I, I get that he's trying to show that he's self-destructive. It's also just like. One of those things where it's just a character so antagonistic that it's hard to. Say, I don't know. Well, well, I. It's been a little while, so I have to discuss the movie as as the podcast goes on. Maybe I'm being a bit too hard on that part, but it's one of the things I wasn't yeah. as crazy about. I think it comes to a head when he's talking to Yondu about it, and Yondu calls him out on it, and he's like, "You're me. We're the same person. I get it." And it's at that point that Rocket is like, "Fuck! You called me out on my shit. Like, yeah, okay." 
And then you see him actively, you know, he's, he's, I, I don't know. I just feel like it's really well written, really well pulled off. Uh, I, I appreciate it. Um, that next time you give it a rewatch, I would, I would try and, and really analyze that and look into it because it's interesting. Like it's a little much in the beginning, but how it ties into his character, I felt like it was pulled off pretty well. Interesting. Um, so, so we get introduced to, uh, Queen, sorry, High Priestess Aisha, uh, and the, the Sovereign, which is a group of planets and a, and a people that are obsessed with genealogy, and their, their skin is gold, and they say they're perfect, and, uh, so that's interesting. Um, they're, they're kind of a combination of the Enclave, which is a group that created Adam Warlock. I was want to say Warlock, um, and uh, I think they're called the the Church of the Church of Truth or something like that. Uh, I have it written down here somewhere, so we'll look into that. Uh, but yeah, so they're they're like a combination of things. But I think the Sovereign as a whole are actually kind of made up for this. Um, and I also find it interesting because they're so obsessed with the genealogy that they have remote piloted ships. So they don't actually die because they don't want to waste good genes, right? Well, it just makes sense too. You know, uh, it's you know not putting your pilots in like active danger. It's like it's yeah. almost like a video game. Yeah, yeah. Well, but uh, but it goes to show, like I mean, like obviously the rest of the world is doing that. That's not something everyone is doing. So it just shows like I don't know how technologically advanced they are, and also like how like arrogant, but how like obsessed they are with their genes. Hmm. Um. So we have Nebula returning right off the bat, which is interesting. Um, and then the beginning scene, Rocket steals all these Cornex batteries or whatever. Uh, this, honestly, this, this movie's even funnier than the first two, which I find to be great. There's just so many good lines, and, and I don't know. Everything about it is just pretty Yeah, no, the humor in this is top form. It's like, it's really, it's a really funny movie. Um, so they are obviously having issues as Rocket and Peter can't decide if he's going to, you know, pilot the ship. And they crash into this planet, uh, Burhart. And that's where they ran into uh, Ego and, and Mantis and uh, the planet. But uh, I think my actual favorite scene in this movie, like the funniest moment, is when, uh, when Rocket and... And Star-Lord are arguing, and then Star-Lord calls him a, ra uh, a raccoon, and he gets pissed, and he's like, I'm not a raccoon! And then he goes, sorry. I apologize. Didn't mean to call you a raccoon. <laughs> Meant trash panda. <laughs> and then Rocket just stares at him, and he goes, I don't know what that is. Is that, is that better? And then he looks at Drax, and he goes, no, it's so much worse! <laughs> and uh, trash panda is actually a meme, I think, that came from Reddit. Uh, but yeah, so we, so we introduced to Ego, who's a classic uh, Marvel character, a little more obscure. Um, and Mantis, who's played by, I don't know how to pronounce her name, Palm Clementiff or something? I actually don't know the actress's name, to be quite honest, which is rare for me. Yeah, she's, uh, Mantis is, is another member of the Guardians, a little less known uh, from the you know, uh, 2008 run comics, um, which is when Annihilation happened. Uh, 
Which is crazy, because, yeah, when Guardians of the Galaxy came out, like, the team as we know it, Annihilation happened in 2008. That's when the Guardians of the Galaxy happened. The OG Guardians were from the 70s. So when, in, like, 2012, or 2010, or whatever, they I think it was 2012 they announced it, when they're like, we're going to make a movie about uh, a group of, you know, comic characters that are four years old, like, that was unheard of. Um, to this day, they don't have a comic that's that current that's been turned into a movie like that, um, in Marvel, at least. Oh, yeah, I guess that's a good point. Maybe Je- is Jessica Jones one of the more recent ones, I guess, but even though that's... That, that'd probably be it, right? Like, there's no one else even from the 21st century. Is Jessica Jones from the... I, I thought she was a more recent one. Yes, Bendis and... Uh, and Gatos... What's his name? It's Michael Gatos. Uh, created, created her semi-recently. Um, I don't know how recent, but uh, yeah. So. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't actually consider that. You're right. I guess they are all just kind of tried and true. Even the lesser-known ones are like older characters. I didn't actually put that together. There's only... But there's very few that are from more modern times, lineups that are from modern times, I guess. Yeah. I think uh, Runaways is maybe 2003 or something oh, like Runaways. that. Oh, Runaways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're pretty modern. Um, yeah. Uh... So, so yeah, Mantis is an interesting addition. Um, I was kind of hoping they'd have someone more like Quasar, but uh, there's no need to add another overpowered character to the team when they're already pretty badass. <laughs> uh, so, they take Peter to Ego's planet, which is just called Ego, because it is him, he is the planet. Well, I mean, it makes sense. Why well, give it a separate name, you know? Yeah, yeah, which is, which is uh, interesting. Um, and uh, he has that moment where he's showing Peter that he's a celestial and stuff, and his eyes go all spacey or whatever. And then he, you know, talks about his how he how he can you know, he's like a mortal or whatever. Um, and then Peter has these starry eyes, and he goes, "Eternity." And eternity is actually an entity in the Marvel universe, and she's made of stars and like galaxies and bodies and stuff. So when he's saying eternity, he's kind of referencing the the entity of eternity, not like that he's going to live for eternity or whatever. Oh, so another clever Easter egg? Yep. Um, so then we go to Contraxia, which is this pleasure, pleasure planet that uh, Yondu and the Ravagers are all at. Um, and Contraxia is a planet um, that uh, the Contraxians, um, Jack of Hearts, who's a really obscure Avenger, I think his mother was Contraxian, and he's maybe half-human or something. But, uh, yeah, he has ties to Contraxia. So another, like, really obscure Easter egg there for fans. Um, I also think we see Howard the Duck again on this, this planet. Yeah, we do. Which is great. Um, and we get introduced to the real Ravagers. And then we have uh, Sylvester Stallone as Staccaro Gord, which is great. Um uh, so, so that was that was fantastic, and he he plays a badass role in this. He does a really good job. I really like Sylvester Storm in this movie. Um, and he says to the person running the pleasure house or whatever, he goes, uh, "You just lost the the service or the the um, like hate customer ish." The, the I don't know the word. <laughs> I don't know what word you're looking uh, for either. The money, basically. The as customers, you just lost. 99 
like groups of the Ravagers or clans of the Ravagers by serving one of them. As soon as he sees that Yondu's there, because Yondu's, you know, you, you find out that he's been uh, transporting all these kids to Ego, and because uh, Ego's whole thing is that he, you know, mated with all these different species and was trying to get a, a son or a child that was, you know, half celestial, half something else that could help him do his you know, the expansion, which is his his dream there to take over the entire galaxy. Right? Yeah, and this kind of adds some more information to Yondu for those of us who didn't know anything about him because we haven't read the comics. Like, in the first movie, he's an awesome character. He's a lot of fun, but, like, you don't really learn a whole lot about him, whereas this is, he's much more integral to the plot in this movie, and I think introducing Stallone and the crew, the original crew, gives you an idea of how their community works and, like, how he's why he's being kind of cast out of it, which is something he would not have picked up on in the first movie. Definitely. Um, so, yeah, we see him kind of... He's been, like, uh, banished, basically, from the Ravagers, and they're kind of their own crew because he doesn't acknowledge them or whatever. Uh, so, Stakar O'Gord is... I think his name's Starhawk in the... The, the OG Guardians of the Galaxy. And here's the weird thing. I've read a fair bit of this, and I know Starhawk. He's a weird character. He's got cool powers, and he randomly turns into a woman and back again. <laughs> Interesting. So, so he has, he's like two bodies in one. It's really weird. Um, but he's not an original member of the Guardians of the Galaxy. Like he, he was the first addition to the group. And there's a couple other members they brought in later on. But yeah, so he's... He may be the, the leader of the Ravagers or whatever, but he's, like, Yondu Udanto was an OG Guardians of the Galaxy before Stakar Okorn came along in the comics. So it's interesting that they chose him to be the leader of this, and there's a couple people I don't even know that they use in the OG group that uh, I hadn't gotten that far in the comics, I guess, so it's interesting. Um, and then we have Martin X, who's one of the OG Guardians, for sure. He's... His whole body, he looks like Iceman. His whole body's made of, like, diamonds. Um, he's played by Michael Rosenbaum, who uh, is Lex Luthor in Smallville. Which I've never seen. Um, I watched a couple seasons and something else, but uh, Michael Rosenbaum is easily the best part of the show. Um, so it's fun to see him there. Uh, and then we have Stakar saying something to Yondu, where he's like, you're not a Ravager anymore, and he says... Uh, the horns of freedom will never play at your funeral. You're you're not worthy to wear the colors of Ogord, which is just some interesting world building. For, I don't think these things are anything from the comics, but it's interesting to see this stuff in in this world. Um, and then we start having the Ravagers kind of split up a little bit, and you got Kraglin kind of sticking up for Yondu while Taserface is against Taserface. Good old Taserface. Another, another great bit when Rocket's just shitting all over his head and dying. <laughs> can't take him seriously. Um, so yeah, we go back to Ego's planet. We find out he's a Celestial. We have Mantis talking to Drax, and Mantis mentioned she's an empath, which is is true to the comics. Um, and then, yeah, we so we find out that Yondu was a Kree battle slave sold by his parents and that uh, Stakar O'Gord freed him. And then, you know, he used to run with his crew back in the day, uh, which is more, you know, background to him, which is interesting. Oh my god, typos are great. 
Uh oh, what'd you type? Got there. So, so Rocket, you know, uh, has his whole bit there with Groot and and uh, Yondu, and Yondu gets his fin ripped off, and then gets the new fin, and then you know blows up the place and everything. And, uh, Taser face alerts the Sovereign and all that fun stuff. Great scene with Baby Groot uh, trying to find the fin. Oh, where he keeps showing up and they, they, he keeps bringing the wrong thing back? Yeah, 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 yeah. I love that scene. That's what I mean. This scene, I actually thought it would be hard to top the first movie, but I, I do think when it comes to humor, this one is actually funnier, which is saying a lot. That's like a highest compliment I could pay because this movie is hilarious. Definitely. Uh, it, it'll be interesting rewatching Thor Ragnarok and trying to compare humor. I think Thor might actually take the cake because I just really like Tech's humor, but between volume two of. Uh, of Guardians and Thor, it's a tough call. Yeah, right. I'm going to rewatch Ragnarok, and that that is going to be tough to beat because that's like that probably is right now the funniest movie in all of the MCU. But that's what I mean. All the they all have their own little sense of humors, and they're all that they're, they're reflective of the directors, like like Taika's Thor, James Gunn doing this. Like that's what I like about the MCU. It allows them to put their own imprint on it. Totally. Uh, so funny Easter egg card here. We have Rocket uh, setting. A jump for their ship to different planets and he swipes through and if you pause you can see him all the planets he's swiping through so he swipes one called Dreslar which is uh, part of the Kree Empire um, Hala is the Kree homeworld um, so that's in there another fun uh, nod uh, one of the planets is Terma which uh, in the comics Quasar is a badass character and Moondragon who is Drax's daughter in the comics they find Adam Warlock in stasis on Terma in the comics. So, another fun nod thing. Uh, he swipes past Terra, and finally he swipes to Ego, which is, you know, obviously Ego's planet. Um, and as they're swiping through, they're going through all these different, you know, galaxies and doing a crazy amount of jumps. And uh, we see Stan Lee's cameo, where he's chatting with Uatu and the Watchers. And this is the most interesting Stan Lee cameo because it, he's talking to the walkers, well, the Watchers, who uh, are a race from before the Silver Age that you know Stanley decided to bring back, and they, their whole thing is they watch everything and they see everything. Um, if anyone really wants to get into that, I, I uh, highly recommend checking out um, what is it called? Something Sin. Original Sin, that is that is a great event, really all about the Watchers. Um, Jason Aaron wrote that one, fantastic one. Extracurricular reading. Um, so the Watchers, their curse is that they, you know, their, their gift is that they can see everything, but their curse is they're not allowed to interfere, they're only allowed to watch. So, while Stan Lee has a cameo in every movie, him talking with the Watchers, it sounds like he's a Watcher himself, or at least an agent for them. So it would kind of make sense that he's in all of these movies, because he's watching everything. Oh, I think that's so brilliant. I think that's such a, a clever a clever idea on James Gunn's part, and that, that to me is how you can tell he really seems to love Marvel. Like, he, to actually have just what, what, you know, is just a fun cameo that we all look out for, but actually have some sort of, serve some sort of purpose in the story, and actually have that make sense is... Like five levels of brilliance, so I, I think that was pretty awesome. Especially because I didn't know what a watcher was until I, you know, looked it up. Like, what what was Stanley's cameo supposed to be? And then when I realized, like, oh, okay, this actually makes perfect sense. Yeah, no, couldn't agree more. It's uh, really, really clever um, and super fun. 
Um, so yeah, we have Ego doing his, you know, his plan there. You find out that uh, that he wants to take over everything. He's kind of bewitched Star Lord, and another great scene. You know, he's bewitched. He's listening to everything he's saying, and then as soon as he finds out that Ego gave his mom brain cancer, he immediately snaps out of it, blasts the crap out of him. Uh, which was a great scene because you're kind of expecting him to just like go along with it because he's you know under his spell or whatever. But the fact that he doesn't, I found that to be a really powerful scene, and I remember really liking that for writing. Yeah. Um. So he's got these these plants that he planted on all the planets at the beginning that we see, and they start turning into this blue blob that's you know going to overtake the planet. Um, we see that same Dairy Queen still kicking around and it's getting covered by the, the blob and trying to take over everything. Um, and in this scene, apparently in one of the cars, you see Peter Quill's grandfather, played by the same actor that was in Volume 1. Oh, really? I never yeah. would have caught that in a million years. I don't know how people catch these. Right? Awesome a lot, I guess. Um, and then, yeah. At some point, I think they're on some kind of uh, ship or something on Ego's planet trying to take them out. And they say something like, uh, oh, this is an old piece of construction equipment uh, from the Bank of Ascovaria, which is another, you know, world-building throwback to the Ascovarian girl that Peter mentions. Um, so mm -hmm. a second Ascovaria reference, which is great. Uh, this movie is really famous for doing a lot of repeat jokes from the original. Like when Rocket sees the one guy's eye, and he's like, "I need that guy's eye." And he's like, "What? No, it's Steve. <laughs> I, I really need it." And you can't, can't, can't keep this very <laughs> And then like Drax at the beginning, looking at Groot, he's dancing, and Groot's stopping. Like they just do a ton of nods to the original. Like, um, uh, before I get too far, uh, for for character development, yeah, we see we see Rocket uh, kind of you know bonding with Yondu, which is a great thing. Yeah, they're a good pair. Uh, we have Gamora and Nebula kind of bonding while still having Gamora be a total badass the entire movie, which I, I appreciate. Um, even though Drax is over the top in this, we have Mantis, you know, uh, he's laughing, he's having a good time, and she, you know, uses her empath powers to feel what he's feeling, and she immediately starts crying, because, like, obviously the sorrow that he feels for losing his family is so, so deep. Um... And the fact that he's living with that and is able to, you know, smile and live his life just, like, says a lot about his character, and I found that to be a really powerful scene. A recurring joke I like is, I, like, it's kind of mean, but how he keeps saying, like, Mantis is ugly, and he's not trying to be mean, but it's just, like, he's just the way he is. He just is very blunt, and then at the end he has that nice moment where he says, like, you know, you're beautiful or whatever, but it's just kind of, it is kind of funny how, like, he keeps unintentionally saying how ugly she is. Like, it's, a, yeah. you know, I got a couple and laughs. He, even at the end, he's like, you are beautiful. And then he pauses and he goes, on the inside. <laughs> and it's like, it's still like, he really can't call her attractive. And then why do we going to be attractive? Yeah, and he's, trying, he's not trying to be like cruel too. That's kind of funny. He's just, he's just trying to like, it's just how, that's how Drax is. He's always like, when, when she reveals that, you know, he has feelings, that Quill has feelings for uh, Gamora, the way that he like laughs, like, you know, in his face essentially. It's like, that's just who Drax, you know, that, you know, he's just not careful with what he says. Yeah, and then he, uh, you know, and he means it as a compliment too. He's like, "Oh, well, it's great that you know, it's it's, ter it's great that you're horrified because people that are friends with you, you know, that they they actually like you for who you are because you're so ugly." <laughs> um, and then Gamora's like, "She's not ugly," and he's like, "What are you talking about? Of course she is." 
And he's, yeah, he's so serious. Um, <laughs> and then uh, when he thinks she's trying to sleep with him. Oh, yeah. He's, like, throwing up in his mouth. He's like, sorry, I just thought about us sleeping together. And she's like, what? No, it's not at all what I'm saying. <laughs> um, oh, really, really good. <laughs> uh, um, I, I really like the, the bit between... Um, Star Lord and, and Yondu, and you know the whole. You may be your father, but I'm your daddy. Mm. Uh, that whole bit. Um, yeah, this this and, movie and, adds a lot to the relationship between those two because we only saw a fleeting glimpse of that. Like we, you know, after the first movie, I just you know I just assume that Peter didn't like Yondu very much because like he you know he worked with him whatever, but how Yondu kept hoarding it over him that he was like, you know, he saved his life, and Peter says at one point like I'm supposed to take that as some like great honor when you find out in part two like that actually was a big deal what he did like he saved peter yeah. and like he did develop that father-like relationship with him even if peter didn't realize it at the time you know that's that's really clever yeah. writing for me and i really like that how peter trying to use the you know celestial energy uh he kind of learns from young it's like how do you think i control my arrow and that kind of ties like you know again he's helping him do these things and he's teaching him things i find that really interesting um, and then that battle's pretty fun, you know. The any any final battle stuff there before the uh, end? Do you want to talk about or anything else about the movie? Um, no, I think we pretty much covered everything. Just uh, yeah, no, I really nothing else. I, I do like Ego as a villain. He's not the most like complex villain, but I, I just like the way that it's all because you know for the first part of the movie, it's you see Kurt Russell's face. It's like. You know, you, you, we've known about Peter's need to find his father, and or not need, but, like, you know, Peter's relationship with his father, how he's being unknown, and how it was going to come up eventually. And I thought they did a good job with him his, him and Kurt Russell scenes, making you feel empathy for him, and, like, starting to even trust him, even though you have this kind of undercurrent that there's something something not going right, like there's something wrong with what Kurt Russell's, with what Ego's saying, but it's just the way it's done. You know, you, can't, you don't know if you can trust him necessarily, if he's a good guy, if he's a bad guy, and then just the whole showdown... The scene in the planet uh, visually like that's one thing with the Guardians of the Galaxy it's one, one of the visually strongest MCU movies like it's got a very distinct visual style on, on its own and you, you definitely see that like in the heart of Ego and like Ego the planet like, just, it's very well done uh, so no nothing really other than that definitely um, so so Yandu makes the big sacrifice play uh, we have the Ravager funeral where you see the fireworks and, you know, which is a really nice scene I guess that's the the color of, of a gourd and and uh, we see all these ravagers, you know, remembering Yandu and respecting him for his sacrifice and stuff. But we see Alita O'Gord, who's got the emo hair there. Uh, so that's the the woman half of, uh, of Starhawk there, but a separate character, which is interesting. Um, so probably Stakaro Goat's daughter in this, I would assume. Um, and then we see Charlie 27, who is one of the OG Guardians, um, which is super interesting. So the OG Guardians, there's four of them. There's Charlie 27, who's this big dude that, you know, because the whole thing is like the Badoon have taken over the solar system. And uh, what, what happens is... So this guy, Vance Astro, gets frozen in time for 2,000 years, right? So he wakes up in the year 3,000 or so, right? And the Badoon have taken over the solar system, and people have spread out to uh, the other planets and are living there. 
and the atmosphere of these planets have changed them. So Charlie 27 is from a certain planet. Because of the way the gravity is, he's jacked. He's this huge, bulging dude. Uh, Martin X, he's from one of the planets, and their skin became hard as diamonds because of this. Um, and then Yondu is, you know, some group of people from Centauri 5 that came on one of the planets. He's the last member of his people. Advanced Astro um, gets some weird foil sort of suit on his body that lets him age. And I think it's some kind of thing where if it were to rupture, he would instantly age a thousand years and then would die. Um, so he's got this special suit on. And he has Captain America's shield. And his superhero name is Major Victory. Um, so it's Major Victory, it's Yondu, it's Martin X, and it's Charlie 27. Those are the OG Guardians. Um, and then, you know, Starhawk comes along, who's Takaro Gord, um, and there's a couple other people later on, but, uh, and Vance Astro is a future version of Vance Astrovic, who we know, comic fans, know as Justice, who is going to be in the New Warriors show. So, it's super interesting, because Justice, who was on the same team as Nova, the New Warriors, in in alternate future, he actually became the leader of the OG Guardians of the Galaxy. Super weird and complicated, but uh, interesting. Um, so, we got uh, the credits, which have a ton of scenes. Yeah, they really shook it up this time. They had like a, a few, like, you know, it's mid credits and end credits. This one had like three or four or five or something like that, like, including the mid credits and the end credits. And uh, I found it really interesting that the in the actual credits, they have a ton of people show up in the constellations and stuff. Uh, Cosmo the dog shows up at some point. Uh, the Grandmaster actually makes his debut in the credits of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Yeah, that's right. I remember, good old, I remember seeing Jeff Goldblum dancing and having a big smile on my face. Yeah, and I remember people were blowing up when that happened. Uh, so the first, after the credits scene, we see Craglin using... Yondu's fin and trying to learn how to use the arrows and he accidentally stabs Drax with it and walks away. That's a great scene. <laughs> um, also in the credits I noticed it had Weird Old Man and Weird Old Man's Mistress and Weird Old Man was played by James Gunn's father and Weird Old Man's Mistress was played by his mother and I have no idea who they are in the movie or when they pop up but they're in there somewhere apparently. Hmm. I didn't catch that. I could not, I could not Google what it was. Um, so after credits scene two, we have the OG Guardians getting together, so Sakaro Gord, uh, Alita O'Gord, Martin X, Charlie 27, they're all like, we should get the crew back together again. Um, and we see, we see, uh, a dude, this red guy who's kind of a slug thing, and he was after my time. Like, I'm not sure who he is. Um, I want to say his name's, like, Lugar or something. Um, he... I, I never saw him in the OG Guardians of the Galaxy stuff I read. But apparently in the future, he's the new Sorcerer Supreme. He's this alien Sorcerer Supreme. So you kind of see him using Doctor Strange-esque stuff in this scene. Uh... So here exists someone from a different race 
who can use magic like Doctor Strange can. Which is interesting. Wow. Um, and then another character I didn't know uh, is Mainframe, who's just this talking helmet, and who's voiced by Miley Cyrus, <laughs> which is ridiculous. Uh, I think I heard it at some point and forgot because it was so crazy. Um, I don't know Mainframe, but apparently Mainframe is a copy of Vision in the future. A copy of Vision in the future? Okay. So, because the OG Guardians of the Galaxy from the 70s actually come from an alternate universe that takes place in the year 3000 or something, right? So, that's interesting. Um, so then we have the third after credit scene, which is the Sovereign. Um, and they have this cocoon where they you know, built this new stasis pod that's going to give birth to their their most perfect subject yet. And she goes, "I think I'll name him Adam." And you, but I, I, you had the biggest smile on your face, if I'm not mistaken. Oh shit, my! Pants. <laughs> so, I think I was like hitting your arm, and I was like, "Fucking Adam!" <laughs> uh, that whole scene, I just kept looking over at you and uh, Cheryl and shit. <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, so so that's Adam Warlock who's going to be in Volume Three, I believe. Um, after credit scene four, we have uh, Peter Quill, you know, parenting adolescent group as they call him. Um, he's just playing video games and he's playing. Oh, you, I, you think I'm boring? You're not listening to me. And you have Groot mimicking. Oh, him, that's so funny! Yeah, because he's mimicking him, but he's going. I am. Because <laughs> that's all I can say. And I just thought I'd be no, no, that is brilliant. Um, and then the final after credit scene, we actually have a Stanley cameo come back for the first time, and it's him talking to the the Watchers as they're walking. By <laughs> that's what I mean. It's such like a clever, like uh, yeah, clever twist, and just like that they're all tired of listening to him. They just abandon him out there, and he's like doesn't know how to get home. That's so clever. Yeah. Um, and it says a lot about James Gunn that he's. So into the fandom and so many Easter eggs that he literally was like, I need five after the credit scene. <laughs> like, damn, that's dedication. Alright. Uh two and a half hours, longest podcast wow, yet. Wow, woo woo. Considering we did we did two movies, uh that's week ten. Week ten in the books with the Guardians of the Galaxy saga so far with Guardians of the Galaxy 3 coming in, I think, 2020, so we still have a bit of a wait, unfortunately, but that's okay. I'm willing to wait for it. I'm willing to wait, too. Uh, yeah, I'm always with the mindset if, if they want to take the time to get the best movie possible, best game possible, best book possible, like, if they want you to take the time, take your time. All right, so for this week, we will be signing off, and uh, see you guys next week, which is going to be the next podcast for us. Which, Part three or four. which will be Ultron, and then followed by Ant-Man. Cool. So, week 11 coming up next. The goodbye.